nothing can strip your nerves screamingly raw like the diabolical Dr. Z and his doubly diabolical daughter. can you take? Warning, this picture is for people with nerves of steel. Get rid of her right away. The sooner the better. I'm leaving here and Nadia's coming too. Too late now. Exorcism, a sacrifice, blessing, or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Welcome to the Nashi Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are back for our ninth anniversary. Yeah, yes, happy ninth anniversary, partner. Uh, yes, we, we're aware that we only are getting uh, about half the number of shows out every year that we used to. But hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're getting old. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's I mean, right. we're now nine years <laughs> older than when we started this show. Mm-hmm. And so... To be to be clear, you should just be happy that yeah. we're still doing this. We should have children to do these shows for us and to do our shows for us. But <laughs> is that the goal? Really? <laughs> yeah, don't really have. We're going yeah, to have to. We're going to have to adopt. Generation. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're in good yeah. shape for that. So yeah. no. Uh, happy ninth anniversary. I'm. Uh, I, I'd actually thought about getting you something, then I thought, nah. So sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's 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 odd because I didn't even think about <laughs> Did getting you. Did think? Okay. Well, <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting that bastard shit. <laughs> You get a Christmas gift, you get a birthday gift. You want something else, this is tough shit. I'm not getting you a damn thing. Anyway. All I want for a present oh, is a new Nashu film to do. And I was, that's, 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 oh, well, the, that would be great if, yeah, uh, yeah. if the fan subbing community could uh, get out there and get on those last few mm. rare Nashu films and yeah. provide uh, English subtitles. That would be excellent. Awesome, yes. Uh, because we'd love to have another uh, you know rare Nashu film to cover here in the ninth year. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That would be that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, I would yeah. be very, very, very extraordinarily happy about that. But mm-hmm. we have a number of shows lined up for you here on the Nashi Cast over the next couple of months. Starting with this one, of course. This one being Beyond Nashi number twenty six. We're going to uh, jump back into mm-hmm. the Jess Franco fountain mm-hmm. and splash around mm-hmm. a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. We never know. You never know what will be in that fountain. Sometimes it's water. Sometimes it's blood. Uh-huh. Often there are limbs floating in there and the occasional finger. But mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. it's just naked women. That's right. So if it's just naked women you're looking for, mm-hmm. well, actually, this is not the film for you. There's no, 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 no. There's, there's some skin. But it's starting to get some some kinky. It's starting to get some. There's definitely eroticism in it, though. I know. It's, it's, oh, it's quite, yeah. yeah. There's some, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some... 
Yeah, there's some eroticism. <laughs> but tonight we're going to be doing uh, Jess Franco's 1966 film, The Diabolical Dr. Z. I cannot recommend highly enough that you get the Kino oh, Blu-ray. No, oh, Yeah, you're probably hearing us gush tonight yeah. frequently about this Blu-ray. It's I honestly don't understand how... I don't know how a film that old looks this good. It truly boggles my mind. I swear there's some scenes where you think you could just... It feels like you could step into, into it. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. uh, it, it's just pretty mind-blowing. It really is. The clarity, the sharpness. Mm-hmm. The absolute... Well, first of all, it's a beautifully shot film anyway. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Cinematography is amazing, and this print shows it off wonderfully. I mean, there's it's it's one of the most... Uh, I, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. The, the gush is going yeah. to happen pretty yeah. hard and heavy tonight. Yeah. But uh, I... Um, Anytime we do a Jess Franco film, so far on this show, I think we've we've not strayed too far into the uh, super weird. Mm-hmm. We have covered A Virgin Among the Living Dead, mm-hmm. which is you know definitely among the odder '70s yeah. you know Franco stuff, and uh, so we've not really you know mm-hmm. jumped deeply into things like uh, female vampire, Venus and mm-hmm. Furs, mm-hmm. or any of the, or succubus or any of the things that uh, a lot of uh, Really heavy-duty Jess Franco fanatics love and have a tendency to champion. Right. What was the last one we did? Was it with Lena Romay? Not that that uh, we did, it down, uh, but it was the... Uh, Lord, we did Lord of the Exorcist, and then we did... Um, was it Nightmares one that, Coming? No, we didn't no, do Nightmares no, Coming Night. No, it wasn't that one. But it was the one where she's essentially is kind of like under a spell for most of the film, where she's kind of in the thrall of a hypnotist or something, if I recall right. We enjoy the film. It's just I can see scenes from it in my mind. I just can't think of the friggin' name. <laughs> The the, uh, the last Franco film we did was kind of our tribute to uh, Lena Romay. We did uh, Night Has a Thousand Desires. Yes, okay. Well, I had Night right then. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it's like, I, you know, it's just, sorry, Jess, you had 150 films. It's not always easy. No, to he do had it. closer to 200, 200 films. 200 films, that's true. And then once you start getting into the, uh, to the variants, yeah. I'm not sure. So that's just it. I'm never clear mm. on the correct count for mm. Jess Franco's filmography as director because we get into that area where big chunks of one film mm-hmm. would then be reused oh, yeah. with yeah. new footage that he, you know new footage mm-hmm. that's been shot by him mm-hmm. to concoct an entirely different film I'm, and i've i've gone through a number of movies like that where i where you can sit down and, and see mm-hmm. okay we well, can watch the, the mm-hmm. one one film and then you can watch another film which uses like Somewhere between fifty and seventy percent of the mm-hmm. same footage, mm-hmm. but through you know different dubbing and uh, different voiceover and new footage, mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. you have a completely different story and a different you know everything yeah. is, is is very different, but with a whole lot of the same cast, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. And I've done that a few times, and I'm about to do it again because uh, I have that new Severin Blu-ray of oh, yeah. um, the Sadist of Notre Dame, oh, which. Yeah. God, that uh, one was came out in several versions. Yeah, well, yeah. the Sadist of Notre Dame. The way I know it is the uh, the film uh, she killed in ecstasy. Yeah. Or, wait a minute, was it she killed in ecstasy? Or was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. She killed in no, ecstasy. no. It was. Um, it was. Holy crap! This is where it gets so confusing. I know. <laughs> it drives me nuts. It was uh, um, exorcism. Okay. Yes, I think it's That's, exorcism. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I think I've seen both versions. I believe. But I'm, have you have you seen Sadist of Notre Dame? Maybe it's just exorcism I've seen. I think that's the one that I've seen. I believe. Okay, so. yeah. But I know the yeah, yeah. But I'm about to sit down and and, and watch that Blu-ray of uh, Say This of Notre Dame, uh, and then I'll probably rewatch because I haven't seen exorcism exorcism in forever. I yeah. still have my uh, old Synapse DVD, so I'll be able to like mm. within a short space of time be able to rewatch the, yeah. the two. Well, or you know, watch them within you know uh, a short space of time together mm. and kind of mentally compare and contrast. 
And um, if I really had the gumption and the time and the effort yeah. <laughs> to put the effort yeah. forward, I guess I could sit down and like write out, you know, write about yeah. it in some way, shape, or form. But I have the sneaking suspicion that one of the extras on the Sadist of Notre Dame Blu-ray will actually spell some of that out and save mm-hmm. me that trouble. So I don't, yeah. I don't feel like I'm, uh, you know, yeah. spending three hours of my time and not really contributing to the mm-hmm. uh, the, the Franco legacy or the the the, uh, the, the burgeoning literature upon just yeah. Franco's film. So, well, yeah. and speaking of devoting time, you know, the on the audio commentary, uh, Tim Lucas points out, actually probably says this on most all of his Franco commentaries, but he says you can't see one. You know, his <laughs> mantra is you can't watch one Franco film, you have to watch them all before you can. And so <laughs> all you people out there who watched 150 or so and you think you are ready to form an opinion, you still got about 50 more to go before apparently you're, you're, you're before you're allowed, qualified to. I used to make so much fun of that line from him back back before back before I I fell into the swamp that is being a Jess Franco. Fan. Oh sure, yeah. And uh, now I, I totally see his point. Oh, I, I totally see, see what he's point. saying. Absolutely, absolutely. But I also do understand um, a lot of people believe a lot of people think that his best work was the stuff he did in the '60s, things mm-hmm. like the film we'll be talking mm-hmm. about tonight. And it's really kind of hard to argue with him to a degree. Yeah, there's certainly the ones that show how accomplished a filmmaker he could be when he had budgets, time, when he took his time, it wasn't in such a, just a mad fury to move to the next film, you know, when he, or a mad fury to, to do something that was really personal that he didn't have to answer to other people about. Sure. Yeah. Oh, something where, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that one of the, one of the defining characteristics of Jess Franco as a filmmaker is a, is a constant desire to fight for his own individual vision. And that's something that, uh, he was able to do more and more, uh, even, when working with some budgets at certain points mm-hmm. in the late 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, he could sometimes bend his desires in the direction of something that was a little bit more commercial or a little bit more, um, uh, shall we say, uh, producer-friendly. Yeah. <laughs> friendly friendly yeah. towards someone who might actually want to turn money around <laughs> right. on this picture. Right. Uh, and so I think that you know his most personal work is always going to be the stuff that so, indivi- that so individualistically felt like a... A a work carved by somebody who had a vision, and he might not necessarily get it across to you right, as, yeah, as yeah. a particular viewer, <laughs> but it, it, you know it's it's irrevoc- irrevocably something that he wanted to make, and you know that's great. Uh, not everybody can follow along to a certain point, yeah, yeah, and true. I get that. No, sure. I mean, I started from that point. I mean, it took me a few before I started yeah. to to get it. And started to realize that okay, yeah, this guy does have something here because the first two or three, yeah, I didn't start off from the best, you know, points there. The first first few I watched, I was like, oh my god, this guy's just you he's know. insane. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. Why is it? Yeah. No, don't zoom again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but nevertheless, uh, before we before we uh, go any further, I tell you what, we'll uh, we'll remind you that uh, you can write to us on the, at the Nashi Cast. And uh, let us know what uh, what you think of Jess Franco, what you think of this film, what is your favorite Jess Franco film, or your favorite three or four Jess Franco films. It's it's fine. Go ahead and make a list. I don't mm-hmm. care. Uh, let us know at nashicast at gmail.com. Anything that you send us will probably spur yet another conversation about mm-hmm. Jess Franco, so yes, keep that in mind. Yep. If you want these podcasts to be less than seven hours long, <laughs> probably a good idea to not get us to talking about this subject again, especially after a fresh viewing mm-hmm. of yet another Jess Franco film, which invariably will cause mm-hmm. these conversations regardless of what you write. So let us know if you've got something. Uh, give us uh, comments, suggestions, ideas. You can also reach us over on the Facebook page for the Nashi Cast. Join us over there. I post the occasional odd thing here and there. I've been. Uh, I posted up some uh, some of the poster art, some of the 
poster art from around the world for the release of this particular film, uh, a few, including a few lobby cards. Uh, there's some really interesting artwork that was done for this movie. Uh, I think mm-hmm. if you've not seen the yeah. uh, the various pieces of artwork for this film, uh, go over to the Bloody Pit of Rod, my blog, and check it out there. There's some... Uh, Most of them tended to be misleading as to what the film yes. was about. And it was very nice, kind of some clever sleight of hand uh, from the advertising <laughs> to what you lead you to expect to what the film actually is. Yes. But some of them, I, well, some of them I, I, I think are, are intriguing. Go over and take a look. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll see what I mean. But... We'll take a break, come back, and then we will dive into talking about the diabolical Dr. Z. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies but how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century hi my name is terry frost and i do the martian driving podcast a podcast where i look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century i look at fantasy horror and science fiction and talk about them sometimes with the guests sometimes by myself but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar if it was ever on your radar so go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. Diabolical Dr. Z, 1966, directed by Jess Franco, co-written by Jess Franco, and a Frenchman mm-hmm. who uh, whose name was Jean-Claude Carrière. And uh, here's the thing about Jean-Claude Carrière. He had a hell of a career. Let's talk about him as a screenwriter for mm-hmm. just a moment. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you were to just look at his career, you would think that he never got anywhere near anything <laughs> that had anything to do with Jess Franco. Yeah. 
Because what he's known for are things like the unbearable lightness of being. Yeah, yeah, art house stuff and uh... yeah, yeah, a lot of art house stuff. Uh, the 1990 version of Cyrano de Bergerac with uh, Gerard de Pardieu. Yeah, uh, play in the fields of the Lord. Uh, one of my favorite uh, 70s French films, The Return of Martin Gare. Mm. The somewhat controversial Tin Drum he wrote. Oh yeah, seen that. Too. And yeah, so, that's, and so that's, that's a pretty cool. This is a man who worked film. with you know Louis yeah, Bunel, yeah. And, you know, really, really big names in yeah. you know international cinema, and he co-wrote the Diabolical Doctor Z, mm-hmm. which might lead you to think that maybe Jean Claude Carrière might enjoy himself a little bit mm-hmm. of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, just a bit. And he did. Mm-hmm. And here's the weird thing: before I realized. Mm-hmm. That he collaborated with Jess Franco, and indeed actually would have had a couple of more projects with Jess Franco. They just didn't come to fruition. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I read, and I can't remember where. I wish I could so I could relate it. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I learned about this series of six Frankenstein novels published in the late 50s in France, who in uh, 2016 uh, were having their first English translation printed in Britain. And I read about them. And I was like, "Oh, these sound fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got to get, I've got to get my hands on these." Yeah. So I picked up the first one. I bought it. Uh, bought it from England. Had it sent over. Called Frankenstein's Tower, and uh, really enjoyed it. It's yeah, it's cool. kind of a weird sequel to both the novel and the Universal film. It's oh, it's, it's really kind of weird what he's done. Yeah. And I read the I read the the first one and the second one. Really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Different different kinds of books. I've got the third and the fourth one on deck. I haven't picked up the last two yet. I need to go ahead and get oh, them. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the thing is, these were written by Jean-Claude Carrière. That's great. And That's uh, awesome. he's still alive. And in 2016, uh, he even wrote brand new pre- a brand new preface to these Frankenstein novels, talking about how he was uh, he was in college. He was a, he was a student when he wrote these six these six adventures. Uh, and at the time, he says, "I could only vaguely glimpse the aftermath of my adventure. Thus, I acknowledged from the outset that Mary Shelley's character was not only alive but immortal and capable of surviving burnings, drownings, and machine gun fire, mm-hmm. and that he could reemerge here or there, even in our own time. Little did I know, and moreover, it was never discussed that the search for immortality was to be the future preoccupation of science." He's mm-hmm. he's he's proud to have you yeah. know these things are still. Get they're they're, they're finally, yeah. finally seeing the light of day in English, and I can honestly recommend these if you like. I'd love to, yeah. Horror, you know, great. horror fiction. No, these were yeah. this one was published in fifty seven, and mm. I think they uh, those were those were written over the course or published over the course of like two or three years oh, there yeah. in the late fifties in France. Uh, I really enjoy them, and my my feeling is that if you want to look a little deeper into one of the screenplay collaborators <laughs> of the Diabolical Doctor Z. You could look into yeah. much worse corners if yeah. you're a Pulp Fiction fan than into his Frankenstein novels. And it's not too hard to see how he and Franco would have found each other if they've got yeah. that particular love for that. Yeah, obviously they share love for a lot of the same kind of kind of uh, you know works of fiction and yeah. pop culture. So, so you know, honestly, yeah, that's cool. the unbearable lightness of being. Hey, not a not a big leap to the diabolical Doctor Z, Z at all. Apparently not. <laughs> now, of course, immediately I start combining con- combining yeah. the unbearable lightness of diabolical Doctor Z <laughs> at play in the fields of <laughs> Doctor Z or Doctor Z at play in the fields of the Lord. You I know, would, I would have liked to have seen all those films. All of these films, yeah. all these combinations of things would have been and could have been. Mm-hmm. Really cool things, but yeah. we don't get those. No, well, maybe we should contact him. Because in our imagine, yeah, apparently he's still, hey. Paul's still around. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we should maybe contact him and go, Hey, now's the time. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe you wrote it. Well, I mean, one of the things that um, I find out looking around 
is that uh, he and uh, Franco uh, worked on uh, an adaptation of Mandrake the Magician. They really oh, were big yeah, fans of Lee Falk's cre- uh, creation, Mandrake the Magician. Lee Falk is primarily known for the Phantom, of mm-hmm. course, but he also created Mandrake the Magician. Mm-hmm. And they were huge fans of it, and they worked on doing an adaptation of Mandrake the Magician, but it never got made. Man, I would have loved to have seen Franco do a Mandrake the Magician film. would have been amazing. <laughs> it would have been nuts. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, and Mandrake the Magician probably could have gotten uh, a decent budget. You know, there, mm-hmm. there, would have been, yeah. there would have been some producers somewhere going, oh, no, no, we can find a way to make money out of this. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, one of those paths mm-hmm. that sadly never got taken, so... Yeah. Let's talk diabolical doctors. Yes, why well, don't we? And uh, so to put it a little bit in perspective of where Franco is at his career, I think that this was somewhere around the dozen, twelfth or so film that he had directed. I think so. Yes, he had it come out. It, he had already done Alpha of Doctor Orloff, which we covered on the show, um, and the Sadistic Baron von Klaus, which I hope we'll cover at some point on the show. And yes. then he did a couple of the he had done a couple of the Red Lips films, I think, uh, starring Nashi favorite Rosanna Yanni. Yeah, depending on how you count, it's like 11th yeah, or 12th right. or 13th, Yeah, including I mean, a few shorts kind of interspersed in there. Mm-hmm. But the, if you're just talking features, then yeah. And this is his, right, right, full-length full features. This And this, I believe, was his last second to the last black and white one. I think he did one more black and white of this, which was Attack of the Robots, I believe. I can never keep it straight. I, I know. I, I have. I have heard that. It depends on this which, may yeah, be. This yeah. may be considered his last black and white film. And it I might can't be. Remember. It might be, actually. I may have, have those written. I may have those reversed. But, but uh Nonetheless, he uh, he was he was about to leave. Uh, in any case, he was about to leave the world of black and white. But he he he's his black and white films of. Uh, I mean, we thought Alpha Doctor Orloff was gorgeous too. You know, his amazing cinematography. But this one is uh, is is even more. I think uh, my understanding impressive. is Attack of the Robots is actually going to get uh, Blu-ray release sometime oh, nice. later this year. I think uh, I read uh, good, that somewhere because I've never seen that one. I would, I would like to see that. It's a good, it's a good little film. I like that movie quite a bit. Uh, that's one that. Um, mm. Uh, it's an Eddie Constantine film, yeah. which automatically makes it kind of worth seeing, yeah. no matter what. No matter Absolutely. what. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here, here's the thing. Let's let's point mm. out that uh, the cinematographer of this film, Alejandro Uloa, Alejandro Uloa, I believe, maybe right. the, maybe the the closest pronunciation there, the cinematographer. Fantastic director of photography. Uh, well. Once you see this movie, you will have absolutely no doubts about his skills because, my God, oh. this is a beautiful-looking movie. And it's a shame he really, I think, only did what this one film with Franco, which is which is too bad. I would love to see him collaborate again. However, he did go on to do several other interesting works, quite a few other interesting works. In Including the, the Exterminator of the Year 3000. Yes, yes, yes. And some Paul Nashie films. Uh, uh, oh, that's right. It, I forgot well, about the Paul he was, he was a cinematographer on some Nashie films. He was cinematographer on Horror Express, our beloved Horror Express. Uh, and a few Antonio Margariti films as well. Yes, as a matter of fact, John Hudson wanted me to be sure and not uh, not let the episode get by without reminding you that one of the films he was cinematographer for was Mr. Super Invisible. Uh, yes. I'm he they, wanted they, to make sure that that found its way into... Of course. Tell, tell Mr. Hudson... That I thank him for making sure that that got mentioned. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. My my mission is complete. I've done my duty. <laughs> right. In the same year that he shot Mr. Super Invisible, though, yes. this cinematographer also mm. shot The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, which, yes. by the way, is an actual good movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> but yes, he's also the cinematographer responsible for El Caminante yeah. and uh, uh, Naked Madrid mm-hmm. and, and a few other uh, really great Spanish films for Paul Nashi. Including the luminous Night of the Werewolf. Yeah, yeah. just a, he's, he really he really knew his stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah I, when I when uh, when I got reminded that he had uh, made Horror Express, I was just 
I was just so thrilled because it's like that new that new Blu-ray's coming out, and yeah. it's like oh, a chance to see his his work in a in a whole new light. That's so that's so good to know. Yes, that's coming from Arrow, by the way. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, I just read a I just read a review. The extras make it that apparently make that disc well worth having. Yeah. So oh yeah, I'm planning to get it. If you're a Horror Express uh, fan, and I can't imagine you're listening to mm. a show about Spanish horror mm. and you're not, and we covered it on a show, so you want to go back and and uh, that's true. We and, we went a little and, and uh, fanatical over this. Yes, film. we did. So. What we have here is a, a film that, um, in a lot of ways, there are many parallels in the structure and the form of this, even in the details of this story, actually, mm-hmm. that you can see branching off from the Alpha Dr. Orloff. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, this is almost him jiggering around, playing around, rearranging the pieces yes. of the story he told in the Alpha Dr. Orloff, mm-hmm. and he makes direct mention of Orloff in the story yeah. of this one to draw your attention to that. He's mm-hmm. not trying to yeah. hide that. He's oh, not no. trying to yeah. pretend. Mm-hmm. He's doing that thing that he loved as a fan of Pulp Fiction and of, mm-hmm. of, this, of those kind of uh, adventure stories in the first place, mm-hmm. of drawing drawing your eye directly to a through line of character names and, yes, and speci- yeah. specific characters and mm-hmm. certain names and situations yeah. from story to story to story. Uh, where you see him playing with variations on themes, variations on situations, uh, play, taking certain characters or character types and putting them in different mm-hmm. situations, and just playing around with a lot of ideas that he finds fascinating. This is something that he would continue to do for the rest of his career, to the point where it drives some people to distraction. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They go crazy. Yeah. yeah. But it, but you know if, once you once you get on that groove, once you get in that groove, you yeah. understand what he was aiming for. And that for. becomes the fun, the enjoyment of watching the films. It's right. like oh, that character again, that name again, or there's that theme again. You know, right. that's yeah. The uh, you know there there the, you know the how many how many times does Detective Tanner show yeah. up in yeah. different Jess Franco films? Yeah. So um, that that's part of the joy of it. And in this, we have uh, a character who, interestingly enough. Dr. Zimmer is a character who I don't think ever popped up again. No, no. So Dr. Zimmer is a an acolyte of mm-hmm. the famous Dr. Orloff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we even, in the in the body of the film, we get a, a, an explanation of what Dr. Orloff's theories were, which mm-hmm. are actually a little bit different yeah, yeah, than yeah. the awful Dr. Orloff story mm-hmm. would have you believe. Mm-hmm. But we're telling a different story. Yes, now. we are. So we bend the mm-hmm. we bend the past, we bend <laughs> the characters yeah. to the story that we're currently telling. Mm-hmm. Which I love. I love. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget. I first saw this movie to get a little bit of a history lesson here, children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I first saw this story. I first saw this movie on a uh, double feature VHS tape from Sinister Cinema mm-hmm. back in the uh, ooh, sometime in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget. This was an early Franco expl- exploration for me. And I'll never forget thinking, man, this movie is great because it starts off with a guy escaping from prison mm-hmm. and like machine gunning guards to get out of the place uh-huh. and it really not doing him much good. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm already, yeah. you know, I'm already on the side of this movie because it's, it's it starts off with an exciting sequence. Yeah. And even in that crappy, and filmed it incredible, v- yeah, those incredible, yeah. like where they filmed that, and now that it looks like, a, like you know, it's like it looks like he's escape, escaping from a, a prison dungeon. Yeah, is what yeah, it looks like. Yeah, and uh, uh, out of, out into the woods, he. Uh, he he don't he don't he don't last well. Yeah, no, he, and, he, he and his one, character becomes wounded. very much a marginal character. I mean, he's throughout the rest of the film, but in a lot of ways, you mean it sets you up as the film does for a couple of different characters that set you up to think this is the character we're going to follow, yeah. and then we don't really, you uh-huh. know, <laughs> which is cool. And you know, one wonders where does that play off of 
if you've ever read a lot of Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. one of the things that you'll know is that the, those those stories, especially the adventure or horror stories, almost always start off in the the first little subsection of the story mm-hmm. to, to 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 strike a mood and to strike mm-hmm. a to, to strike the tone that the the story is going to have. Introduces you to a character who is then killed. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know Hitchcock made that famous with Psycho. Mm-hmm. But on the printed page in Pulp Fiction, both horror and uh, adventure fiction. That would be a way to get you invested and know that the stakes are actually high here. Yeah. People are, you know, people die in the first few pages, mm-hmm. and it's someone that, you know, mm-hmm. if you were naive enough to believe that this was going to be the character you were going to follow throughout the story, then here's your little surprise, and then we go to yeah. chapter. We go to chapter two. Yeah. And so the same thing. Same thing is done here. We're introduced to a character as he escapes from prison, mm-hmm. and then he ends up in the clutches of Doctor Zimmer, mm-hmm. who's working. You know. This, by the way, people, if you were unaware from the title, this is a mad scientist film. <laughs> and if you weren't aware of that, as soon as you saw Dr. Zimmer, you would automatically know this guy's mad because he has the classic <laughs> yes. sunglasses with massive, like, shock of white hair <laughs> that being mad apparently does to you. I think he I probably, think does, before yeah. he went mad, he probably, like, looked totally different. But as soon as he went mad, it, you know, and, and I love the I love when you first see him with his female assistant and his daughter and they hear the news of the escape, that there's a comedy escape. He, he almost immediately gets this light in his eyes. Even though he can't possibly know that the escape convict's going to come his way, he almost like he does. The look in his eyes, he's almost just, you can almost see the wheels turning like, I found my morpho, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that really is what this guy becomes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because we're, as, soon, as, soon as, they, as soon as they find this guy, mm. they've been listening to radio reports and reading the newspaper, so they know who this guy is, they know he escaped from prison, mm. yeah. and they know he's a killer, a convicted yeah. killer. Yeah. And he's going so, to a place to hide. He's going to, yeah. yeah. So they, they don't really have to worry about mm. anybody being overly concerned about what they do to him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so our mad scientist character, along with his his daughter, who's mm-hmm. also a doctor yeah, and his Irma. assistant. Yeah, I think, right? Irma, Irma. is her name? Yes, yes. And yeah, and, and, the, and his, other, his other female assistant. Mm. We, the daughter is blonde, and yeah. the other assistant is black hair. Yeah. <laughs> so that we can easily tell them just apart. Tell them apart. Very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, a, it's an old son of a trick of making mm. sure you know who we're looking at here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, and I love the lab set, by the way. I think... I think oh, the, the lab set the lab, is awesome. The laboratory the, with the... Okay. Oh, that great... The, the spider arms on the, you yeah, know, yeah, it's like Doctor Octopus's arms or something. Yeah, drag dragging the yeah. dragging the 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 subject, the human subject, to the the uh, the uh, forty five degree angle mm. glass table. Yeah, so that we can have you know any view we want of the subject as they're being getting, experimented upon. Yeah, getting a big long needles plunged through their heads and back. Their skull. And, yeah, yeah. No, I love the and it's great because those that also echoes you know there's the, the spider imagery throughout this film. You know, and, yeah. and including one, you know, the later character that we meet. You know, so I love the the the, the costume she wears. So I love the repeated the, those arms kind of echo that throughout the film. But it's just a great contraption. It's one of the best insane insane lab <laughs> contraptions <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I will say this: what what occurred to me is, is I love you know I I'm a sucker for mad scientist films. Oh, yeah, I just, yeah, I love sure, them. me too. Yeah, I love them. I love them. I love, yeah. them, I love them. And the yeah. thing that occurred to me watching this is something that has a you know has crossed through my mind before. And this is I'm pretty sure mm. that. We only learn about the mad scientists who actually have good help. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's I true, think yeah. that there are a lot more mad mm-hmm. scientists out there mm-hmm. who just utterly fail because they can't just find, can't find help. that help. Yeah, they yeah. can't find <laughs> the, the right henchman mm-hmm. or the right lab assistants who can get on board with whatever mm-hmm. the mad scientists' mm-hmm. goals are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, we only really find out about the that that small percentage <laughs> of mad scientists mm-hmm. who are actually able to find good help. 
And what I hate is that when at the final end, when the whole lab's burning down and everything's crumbling around them, they never stop to think to give a little thanks to the people who helped them get, you know, get to that, you know, help them get where they, where they, where they, where they got to help them get there. You know, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. All my great assistants there for uh-huh. my last words before I burn up and, and this just, you know, the final conflagration, you know, <laughs> I think that every year, hundreds mm-hmm. of mad scientists fail yeah. to attain their goals mm-hmm. Mainly because they don't network well. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I don't they think don't, they yeah. do. No, I think no. I think they have. They probably have bad hiring practices. Mm-hmm. They they they. Honestly, they might want to farm that out to like a, a decent like uh, freelance HR department. <laughs> Maybe that would help. Yes, mad scientists they need their own HR. They do. They yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In this case, Doctor Zimmer has a very loyal, very intelligent, very well educated daughter who is totally on board, mm-hmm. and also a other assistant who's oh. totally on board and then they get their hands on this convicted killer who they can experiment on and by damn mm-hmm. now we got three assistants <laughs> the only problem poor dr zimmer has and now i'm couching it in terms of poor dr zimmer yeah. so that's that's it's <laughs> probably not smart the only problem he has is he is not as well as he should be kind of got a bum ticker there i think or yeah, something that's yeah, yeah. he's yeah so, uh, Mr. Zimmer uh, goes to this scientific conference mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in Zurich. I can't remember. He gets, unfortunately, what he's expecting. He gets a hostile reception from the gathered scientists there. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though he, he at this point, he's, he's already done this to this convicted killer. So, he has a way to prove his theories. He can actually demonstrate that he is able to do what he says he's done. But, sadly... The stress is too much for him, and he actually dies mm-hmm. there at that scientific con- uh, scientific convention without ever having been able to present his proof. This this you know his his, do- his daughter is there with him, mm-hmm. and she witnesses this the uh, the humiliation and uh, her father's death. From there on, the picture becomes Irma Zimmer, mm-hmm. vengeance seeker. Yeah, she is actually the diabolical, diabolical yeah. Doctor Z. You know, it's she it's. Is. it's uh, which is interesting because that's uh, it makes me wonder if is 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 this one of the earliest female mad scientists in a way of a film? It's got to be pretty early on, if not the first. It's got to be well, especially one that becomes yeah. the title character, like the character, you know. That's, well, the the like last year, Adrian and I covered Lady Frankenstein. Oh right, yeah, and that's you know that's in the seventies. Yeah, so yeah. that's a few years after this. Yeah. So she's yeah. the title character, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, the the female mad scientist. Is like a real rare bird. Yeah, very much so. He said, realizing what bird means in (laughs) in certain areas. Anyway, I don't know if this is like the first serious Mm. titular female mad scientist. Mm. But it's got to be pretty close, right? Because, I mean, I know it did come after the whole slew of 50s mad science films. And if I thought about it really hard, there might be, there's probably something maybe that we're missing. But it's got to still be pretty, pretty... Still pretty, I think, uh, uh, one of the first. And there may be something in the 50s, one of those 50s sci-fi films that, that I may be just slipping my memory where we had a mad fem- female mad doctor or something that was the uh, that was the main character. But Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it was difficult for me to get here considering my health. As you all may know, My whole life has been devoted to neuropathology. I have investigated this matter for over 30 years. Although all of you always considered him as a pretentious charlatan, we all agree on the usefulness and the genius of Dr. Orloff. According to him, certain specific parts which are located in the brain as well as the spine 
proceed indirectly together to determine good and evil and provoke these reactions. Therefore, this prodigious scientist was convinced that the origin of good and bad has always been purely physiological. And I want to say that even though it will destroy all psychosomatic theories, I agree. I can tell you my discoveries go beyond those of Dr. Olaf. Recently, with my daughter Irma, I succeeded in discovering and with precision, the exact centers creating good, as well as those creating evil. Their locations are distinctive. And I discovered Z-rays, capable of eliminating, neutralizing, or activating these motor centers. And I have living proof of my success. Have you done experiments on persons? No, Dr. Kalman, no. I only experiment on animals. And what sort of animals did you use? A tamed cat that had uh, devoured a mouse? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Moroni, will you let me speak? At last I've been able to eliminate those cells in a hyena. Now she gently takes her food from me. I tried the opposite with a dog and the animal went out of his head. He destroyed himself. And what do you want exactly, Zimmer? Vikas. I want a chance to try it on humans. How dare you? Take us for fools. You should be put in jail. Let me explain. Thanks to me, all the killers, all the abnormal, all the sadists, all the maniacs could be transmuted into wise and good persons. And they would have a chance to begin a normal life. Beyond scandal, it's outrageous! What risk would there be if I were allowed, just for once, to use a convicted criminal? No, this is You're the one that I'd call criminal, Doctor! We must put a stop to this man. I think everybody's opinion here is that you'd better leave this Congress right now. And we order you to stop your inhuman experiments. Yes, it's No, because... No, don't... No! So I have to continue. Father. I swear. I'll continue. If there are some female mad scientists out there in the 1950s... Yeah, and of course, we're talking kind of purely cinematic right now. I mean, I'm sure Pulp Pulp Fiction was probably full of some Nazi female scientists or whatever and things. But as far as just in the cinematic history, I would be interested to know how much of a precedent there was for for the character of Irma Zimmer here. I love watching... Well, first of all, the actress, um, Mm -hmm. Mabel Carr, is really... Well, first of all, she's gorgeous, of course, but she's also really, really good in this film. And there's that scene after her father's death where... Mm -hmm. She is uh, out on this restaurant's terrace, obviously drinking a little too much to cope mm. with her grief, mm. is is really good. And this yeah. is when we get introduced to the fact that she knows a particular man who mm. was at the conference, but is not one of the scientists. She yeah. knows she knows him because they went to they went to college together, and he comes to her to try to comfort her because, well, you know, <laughs> she just saw her father die. Yeah, right. Yeah, and um, we get a we get a sense of their relationship. 
from the from the past. It seems that they were, you know, they they were they may have been lovers in the past. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, that seems pretty probable considering mm-hmm. that they end up sleeping together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very it's a very human moment. And that's one of the things that I I, I kind of like because what we have is this woman who's in grief. She's drinking. She she's coping with more than she can really let on mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. To anyone else, she's coping with not just the loss of her father, mm-hmm. but the, the what she is going to have to assume is maybe the loss of his work because mm-hmm. he was the real driving force behind this entire life's work that he that has been has been his driving force and has been something that she's been helping him with for years, and it seems to have actually uh, guided her studies when she was in school as well, and mm-hmm. so she's she can't really talk about that because that's a little outside of what she's willing to share. But it's very interesting. This is a very adult way of handling this, and that's yeah. that's something that I think is very refreshing. In that, uh, not that I don't get a get a kick out of the kind of juvenile nature of the the relationships and how they're portrayed in, in say, the the Universal horror films from the forties, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where everything yeah. has to be very you know very guarded. And yeah, you can't, oh, yeah. You, can't, you can't delve too deeply into anything that might uh, mm-hmm. might might get the little one's thoughts to percolate yeah. <laughs> right. on thoughts <laughs> right. to percolate on something that just might not be so <laughs> no. safe. Yeah, and we have this woman who's drinking. Mm-hmm. She's in grief. Um, she she has to to hide a lot of her emotions. Um, but that moment where he walks her back to her uh, mm-hmm. to her hotel room, mm-hmm. and she opens the door, and he just kisses her, and she changes. You know, she she slides her face around so that he only kisses her on the cheek. He gets the hint. Hey, you yeah. know, we're not going yeah. anywhere with this. Right. And goes to leave, but when she opens the hotel door mm-hmm. and looks in and sees her father's wheelchair, it mm-hmm. it hits her emotionally. Yeah. It's another one of those little gut punches, mm-hmm. and she realizes that she does want someone with her. Mm-hmm. She can't, she doesn't want to go into that room alone, mm-hmm. and so they end up spending the night together. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a beautiful little adult moment. It's yeah. one of those things that's very emotionally real. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that um, when you have people critiquing. Um, horror films in general, or films of this type mm-hmm. in general, uh, they they tend to want to overlook bits of bits of business like this. Yeah, pl- yeah sure. spots where the 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 screenplay and the characterizations are nuanced and adult mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. intelligent and something that it's very easy to uh, identify with mm-hmm. because it's it's she first of all she's she's doing she's doing an excellent job as an actress yeah, she is. but just the humanness <clears throat> the humanness of watching what happens there is really affecting mm-hmm. and uh, I just, I just, it's i know it's weird to be talking about the diabolical dr z and zooming in on that sequence mm-hmm. of events but i just <laughs> thought it was so good yeah, because yeah. it gives you the core of why the film is is asking you to follow this character and to try to be a little sympathetic toward her yeah, because she yeah. from here on out she starts doing mm. some pretty questionable and yeah, yeah, eventually yeah. reprehensible things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she yeah. does become a murderer. Yeah, she does set out mm-hmm. to take three three particular scientists that she blames for denigrating her yeah. father and pushing him to have his heart attack. Yeah, she's after them. She is setting herself onto a path to mm-hmm. kill these men. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the this is a moment where the film is very smartly trying to get you mm-hmm. sim- not just sympathetic to her, but kind of on her side. Well, and also, you know, accepting of Philip because Philip is going to become a person who, as far as we can tell, has is intimate with two, basically our two female stars. You know, right. is, and and so so that people don't think of him as a 
not as a philanderer or cad or whatever, right. you know, or as much as possible to show, you know, not just have him be like Mr. Suave, you know, kind of, but, but more like that, that maybe that there was something they had a past already. And this was something that it, this was him being this was him being a good yeah, friend. This like, was him being a good friend. Whether you want to excuse yeah. it or not, at least it I think is also yeah. trying to to make you know kind of soften that aspect of his character too. You know, right. at least make it maybe not quite come off as sleazy. You know, because he is going to be basically our male hero or male lead. So yeah, yeah, and and I would, and I would say that the, the the final act of the film does he does turn into someone who is. Going, he's being very active. He's going yeah. out of his way mm-hmm. to to affect things mm-hmm. because he thinks he's got something figured out that he can't convince anybody else of. Yeah, and um, once again, it's it's another bit of that adult, the adult themes within this mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily things like oh, almost some nudity or yeah. oh, mm-hmm. how erotic or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's adult in the way that we'd like to think of adult as being something that is actually mm. couched mm. in a way that the kids it would either go over their heads or they wouldn't mm. be interested mm-hmm. in it or it wouldn't yeah. mean anything to them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing that, sh- you know, like I say, and there's there are more instances of this throughout the film. Some of them mm. comedic. I think yeah, there's, I mean, some, there's some really neat mm, things yeah. that honestly... Yeah, the humor, yeah, the humor in this film is, is well done yes, too. I mean, yes. there are bits of humor, but it's never, I mean, it's nicely placed though. It's, yeah. Well, it's nicely placed and it's well played. Yeah. And, it, and it's the kind of humor that seems to grow out of, uh, shall we say, the type of jobs that these people are doing. Yeah, right, so, yeah. Well, we skipped over something before, um, and that's my fault, I apologize, people. We skipped <laughs> over the fact that um, one of the things that, uh, oddly enough, one of the things Philip does to uh, try to put Irma at ease is he takes her to uh, this restaurant where there's this bizarre floor show. This is mm-hmm. where we're introduced to the other female, the other major mm-hmm. female character in the film uh, who goes under the stage name Miss uh, Death. Death. Yes. Which also is an alternate title of the film, yeah, by the way. Yeah. We didn't countries. talk about alternate titles, but I mean, there's only three. I mean, there are well, there's, well, there's the main one and two alternate. Yeah, titles. Yeah, there's Diabolical Doctor Z, which is you know translated into various other mm-hmm. other languages. That's that's the main title. Miss mm-hmm. Death is or you know Miss um, Morte mm-hmm. uh, is uh, one of the other titles, and then there was the what, what country was it? I can't remember. I think it was France, I believe. It was yeah. in the clutches of the maniac. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I love Which, that one. You know, hey, it's a good title. It I works. Don't mind it, it works. I don't mind yeah. it at all. Uh, yeah. So those are the those are the three alternate titles. But we're introduced to uh, Miss uh, Miss Death's uh, floor show, which uh, is very much a spider's web mm-hmm. on the floor mm-hmm. and an odd. I don't, it's not a dance. It's, it's more a, of a, 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 of a yeah. writhing across the floor kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, but hey, it works for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 actress playing this this particular part. Uh, She's sort of uh, yeah, Estella Estelle Blaine or Estella Blaine. Estella Blaine. Estella Blonde. Blonde. Uh, Blonde yeah. yeah, she uh, although she had you know a sad ending to her life. Yeah, she, she was known as the body. The body. As Tim, as Tim <laughs> Lucas points out in his commentary track, I was I was not surprised to learn that because. <laughs> Uh, this one is as close to naked for a long stretch of this mm. film as she can possibly be, uh, and the odd performance. There's a, there's a, mm. there's a there's a quality to her face which sometimes can seem. I thought it was interesting that what she plays against in this floor show is a mannequin. Uh, yeah, exactly. She's basically coming on to a to a mannequin. Right, right, right. And there are, and there are a lot of moments when her face mm. 
just very has a very blank look as well as if she's attempting to mm. mimic that mm. still posture mm. that that still look of a mm. mannequin's face and I thought that was very inter- I, th- I thought that was very interesting and I I, mm. I, th- I think that was clearly something that visually Franco was trying to go for with the the this weird well nightclub yeah. performance yeah I think it's a stunning sequence really I mean it's just so yeah. so visually memorable and I thought. Well, I was watching. I was thinking, I, I'm, I, this to me is more erotic than so many of his zoom in on the endless zooms <laughs> in on the crotches of his naked women of the later yeah. Franco. You know, this is, you know, again, it's Franco having to show restraint, and so now we're seeing like, okay, he can actually make something, you know, erotic. Oh, yeah. and, you know, and uh, so yeah, it's a pretty pretty amazing uh, sequence there, and of course, odd cabaret sequences and dances, you know, are also another theme that that populates Franco films throughout, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, he would almost always return to a, a nightclub mm. for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mu- you know, mm. musicians yeah. or a yeah. strange stage show, mm. um, lots of strange stage shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> and I don't even think this is the first one. I think there's one probably, in there. Yeah. Isn't there one in Alpha Dr. Orloff? I think there is. Probably is. I think I believe, you're right. I think you're right. I there was. But ne- nevertheless, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so we're, we're introduced to this, and then... On her way back to when Irma, dis, you know, wakes up the next day and decides to travel back to uh, at Castle Zimmer, <laughs> along the way she encounters a a female hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Very quickly concocts a plan. She asks mm-hmm. her enough questions to know that nobody really knows where she yeah. is, yeah. has any idea where she might be, or is waiting for her at any particular place. This mm-hmm. woman's just hitchhiking around Europe, apparently, and uh, so. Irma takes it upon herself to uh, kill this woman mm-hmm. <laughs> and use her body mm-hmm. to fake her own death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> this is this is very interesting, but I have a question. Yes. And I, I, I don't know if you'll have a good answer because I yeah. don't think there is a good answer. Mm-hmm. Why did she feel the need to fake her own death? Yeah, it's uh, my feeling was that she already knew that she was going to basically be killing these three guys yeah. who she blamed for her father's death. So my feeling is that she thought that if the world thinks that she's them. dead, then they won't be, they'll be less likely to try and pin, pin blame on her when these guys start disappearing was just my take on it. Yeah, I, I guess so. But at the same I time, mean, with, there's the, a the issue, Well, the thing about it is we never get any kind of real inkling that she's even thinking in this way, really, oh, until no. she starts until doing, she, until she she starts starts doing, doing this. Yeah. So, so that may be a reason too, why it seems so kind of random, uh, you know, it's just, well, when she, when she, <clears> when she, Kills this girl and sets her up in her car, mm-hmm. and then sets the thing on fire and rolls it off into the lake. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, so she's faking her own yeah. death. Yeah, but there's that there's that part of me that's going. Mm-hmm. So if you just had yourself an alibi at all times, and since you your plan is to actually have your <laughs> your uh, you know mental slave going out and killing these mm-hmm. guys in the first place, you would always have be able to have an alibi. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, it is no, it is strange. I agree. <clears throat> I agree. It is. It is very. But, but we. Nevertheless, we, 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 we are not. I know. We are not wired in the way that mad people are. <laughs> mad science, mad scientist daughters are wired. So you know, if uh, if only. But we're okay. Not. And that, let's discuss for a second the fact that when she uh, when she uh, fakes her own death here, she accidentally burns, burns her own the, face. Burns her, melts her face off. Yeah, it's like <laughs> the bottom part of her face. How careless of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as, but then as soon as she's back in her mad scientist lair, she sets about. Mm-hmm. Repairing her own face through self surgery. Yeah, and yeah, granted, which seems pretty out, painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, don't man. tell me about it. Yeah. And that's that. Well, and that's an instance of you know black and white blood, which yeah. is which is interesting. You have yeah. the, the self surgery scene. Yeah. 
it's a little out of the ordinary to have the the scalpel draw you know drawing you know drawing you know yeah. granted black blood yeah out of uh, out of the face of a character. We'll see. We'll finish your thought. I didn't mean. Oh to no, no, it's that. just well, that it, it's it's a little out of the ordinary, and it uh, it's also the thing where if and I wonder if this was something they were playing with and they decided not to go in this direction. I wonder if the idea mm. was originally. Uh, thinking let her alt. Let's have her do this and alter her appearance enough so that when she is walking around, she looks so different that nobody nobody thinks that she is Irma Zimmer. But the thing is, yeah. she still looks like herself. She does, and and I see what you're saying. I hadn't thought about that. What I thought was maybe because where I thought it was going to go, I thought that because she had suddenly done this injury to herself, she was going to. Uh, at the same time that she's taken out these doctors, she was going to be kidnapping newball young ladies and grafting their skin <laughs> oh, onto yeah. her because that would be a total tie back to so many other films we've seen. And, oh, yeah. and because Franco loves these, you know, pulp, pulpy kind of ideas, the whole thing of scientists grafting, know, grafting flesh. flesh from, you know, young ladies onto their own daughters, wives, whatever, to keep them alive or beautiful. I thought that we were going in that direction. Yeah. Not really where we go, but that's kind of what I was thinking that was has was sort of being trying to call back to that as the classic, right. you know. But see, that's what I kept thinking is, yeah. is don't get me wrong, I mean, she's she's a beautiful woman. Yeah. And obviously they once they cast her, I'm I'm mm. I'm just wondering. Once they cast her, they go, well we don't want we want to keep that aspect of it, but we also don't want to like switch out actors. Yeah. So did they just decide yeah, it is kind of a it make is her look a little different. Make have her have her have her look a little different because what it what it boils down to is just having different makeup on her. Yeah, and lighting her a little differently. I yeah. think. Yeah. At times, but you know, in other words, she's supposed yeah, they to do, be they different. Do. She's supposed to be different enough looking that when yeah. she walks by Philip in a certain you know in a, in a couple of scenes, he doesn't recognize her. But I would say I attributed that more to her dyeing her hair than you know because she Maybe. dyes her hair yeah. dark and rather than because I'm like you, I thought her face other than the fact they did some things to her skin to make it kind of look like it's maybe like it's shiny not shiny or like it's not natural skin yeah. but otherwise she looks the same other than just she has yeah. black hair but i thought that was why he didn't recognize her was just was thrown off by the i agree but like i said i wonder if in an earlier version of yeah, this could be that they was going to use a totally they, different actress, go with a different actress and kind of you know and really really yeah. switch things up in a yeah. weird way but I, I don't know i don't know otherwise it really doesn't serve a good purpose. No, it really doesn't. Story, affect... Except to have the self surgery. Right, somebody. exactly. Uh-huh. Maybe they just wanted to continue in the Orloff tradition of having some gr- <laughs> grim, you know, grisly surgeries or something. Because you're right, it doesn't really. She didn't. It doesn't really alter what she or affect no, what she no, does no, in the no. film or her plan. So yeah, it is kind of an odd. Uh, not not, there, not that I'm complaining. No, it's fine. It's all fun. Absolutely, stuff. I absolutely yeah. love this film. I think it's yeah. f- fantastic. But I, I will admit, I've now seen this movie. Four or five mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. and there reaches there. Re- you reach a point where you start to, in any pulp story, yeah, if you right. pay too much attention, yeah. <laughs> you start to see the things that are there mm-hmm. to set up something later in the story. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you start to see things that are you know obvious mm-hmm. setups for mm-hmm. later events, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, okay, so. But then the things mm-hmm. that don't pay off like that, the things yeah. that don't really serve a purpose, mm-hmm. also have a tendency to stand out once you rewatch things. Yeah. So it's like, so why did we did we just need the self surgery scene, or mm-hmm. was they you know was there a goal in mind of actually mm-hmm. like making her look very different by mm-hmm. casting a different actress, but or leaving her scarred up in some yeah. way? I don't know. One thing we should go ahead and mention right here because it will come into play is we've mentioned Miss Death, but we've not mentioned that besides her amazing outfit or or, or sort of kind of. You know, approximation yeah. of an outfit that she's wearing that she also has razor sharp long claws. Yes, which is wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Something else I like um, before we get the self surgery scene 
when uh, Irma gets back to the to the mad scientist lair or lab, pardon me, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 black haired female assistant. She rebels at the whole idea when she finds mm-hmm. out Dr. Zimmer's dead. She rebels at the whole idea of going after these three scient- yeah. these three other scientists and killing them. Mm-hmm. So she has uh, yeah. old Hans Zimmer, the, yeah. the, uh, the escaped and now mind-controlled killer. Yeah. Just grab her up. Throw her on the... Have the Dr. Octopus arms, throw her on the table. <laughs> give her the needle. Give, yeah. her, give her the needle. Give her the whole process, <laughs> yeah. you know, where they... Yeah. You know, things, it, it's a pretty interesting process. Things, yeah. go in, things go into your brain. Things mm-hmm. go into your spine. spine. And suddenly you're docile you're, as a kitten. Yeah, you're not. You're yeah, exactly. So yeah. you're not a zombie because no, you definitely you're have alive, you're, you're alive and you have the ability of to, mm. to have thoughts. As a matter of fact, you have the ability to to shake off the control yeah, eventually. Right, yeah, but uh, you are, uh, shall we say, susceptible to doing whatever Irma tells you to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think, uh, I think, I think, I think, female mad scientists. Mm. I love them. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we were just talking about how uh, you and I were just talking last month over on the Bloody Pit about uh, how great Lionel Atwill is as a mad scientist and man-made monster. Mm, mm. I got to tell you, <laughs> Irma Zimmer oh, she's is just as great a yeah. mad scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what, twenty some, you know, twenty-five years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty-five years yeah. later, she's and amazing, she's, and she's just oh, she's she's pure evil. The thing is, I have more mm-hmm. lots more sympathy for Irma Zimmer because I understand why she's pissed off. Mm-hmm. I understand mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. she is, mm-hmm. as, you know, becomes as twisted as this goes along. Uh, you know, I mm-hmm. can't, you know, <laughs> can't, can't countenance the murder, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> I do understand the desire for revenge. Good for her. Now, Irma, having seen Miss Death's performance and 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 putting, uh, having taken note of it, special note of it when she saw that nightclub act, she thinks that Miss mm-hmm. Death, with her gorgeous body. And her temptress ways mm-hmm. would be the perfect instrument to lure in her three victims and kill them. So she goes to her, tells her that she's uh, got an incredible job for her that'll take her all the way to the states and possibly even to Hollywood. Entices her in- into a, a fake office, com- a fake mm-hmm. office where uh, she is then, although <laughs> although Nadia, the Mrs. Death character, actually catches on that something is not kosher. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty quickly yeah, she did, yes. and tries to escape but doesn't make it because yeah. our our morpho character yeah <laughs> is a, is able to put the, put the stomp on that and mm. grabs her up after and, chasing the theater right all over the go yep, yep, yep. Yes. and this is this whole time Nadia is uh, <laughs> Estella Blaine she's in this wonderful bodysuit yeah. it's, it's this is this is the this is that she was wearing a different bodysuit in the in the yeah, in the, dance, in the, right. uh, the nightclub scene and I think it's very interesting. I would not thought about it at all until mm-hmm. Tim Lucas points out in his commentary track that it may have been the the the, the outfit that we see her in in the nightclub scene mm-hmm. may very well have been a reshot sequence because um, ten to one she mm-hmm. probably as soon as he said this I thought he's got to be right mm-hmm. that the the outfit that she's captured in and that she spends most of her time in in the movie mm-hmm. which is. Very see-through, except for that yeah. s- the, the the spider that seems to emanate mm. from her crotch, right? And with the arms, you know, very mm. carefully orchestrated across the bodysuit yeah. to cover her nipples. H.P. Lovecraft would have had nightmares about this suit, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but yes, but anyway, but, yeah. but but Tim points out that they prob the probable intention was for her to be in that outfit doing that sequence because she would be the spider yeah. in the web. Yeah, it would right? make total sense. Crawling yeah. across the mm-hmm. web. Mm-hmm. And that they may have been forced to reshoot this because remember, this is a Spanish production in 1966. Yeah. yeah. So they're not you're not gonna be able to get away with some of this, mm-hmm. you know, there's gonna be some there's gonna be some censorship mm-hmm. brought to bear oh, yeah, on this. Yeah. 
And I think he may be right that I could, yeah, I could believe she, it. although she spends the majority of her time on screen shooting that sequence, the censors probably wouldn't have allowed. They did because a lot of what's shot in, it and had to reshoot yeah, it. Because a lot of what's in the theater, you know, she's in she's in shadow, she's hiding down aisles, you know. But well, if they tried to she use start, that, she starts out with a coat yeah, over. Her, so, but if they'd use that outfit doing the thing she was doing in that dance sequence, that right. just might have been a little too uh, right, too much. And uh, through through most of the scenes where she's in that bodysuit. You know, when you're seeing her from behind, I mean, it's it's very sheer and behind. But I don't. Oh, yeah. There doesn't seem to have been as much mm-hmm. as much of a problem showing a naked behind. Yeah. As uh, let's say uh, the the forward facing naughty bits. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> let's just let's let's put it that way because yeah. that sounds just juvenile as hell. <laughs> so I think that um, Tim may be right there, and I think that it's kind of fascinating to realize that. Um, they may have shot it that way, but we'll never. We may never. Yeah, you know, that, right. But that footage is certainly. If it was ever discovered, I think that people would would be thrilled. But it, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. just surmised that it was ever shot that way in the first place. Yeah. So they're able to grab her, drag mm-hmm. her back to the mad scientist lair. Yeah. <laughs> give her the treatment. Mm-hmm. So now we have Mrs. Death mm-hmm. as the uh, say. Let's just call it femme fatale. Yeah. Being yeah. sent out to mm-hmm. lure these three scientists to their mm-hmm. doom. The first mad scientist they go after. Yeah, it's a, is uh, played by Howard Vernon, our old buddy. Our, uh, I, I so love Howard Vernon. It's great. Uh, now it's interesting that uh, I never noticed it before, but listening to Tim's commentary, he pronounces it Vernon, and I never knew that oh, it was. Yeah, that's I true, never realized does. all these years we've been calling it Vernon is a natural, but apparently it's Vernon, as or at least the way Tim pronounces it. So I don't know if that's a French pronunciation. I forget what Howard could be. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stage is. name to begin with. Yeah, that's um, true. That's true. Because his real name was Mario Mario mm. Lippert. Yeah, right. He's, he was Swiss, so mm. I mean, mm. he could. I mean, let's be honest; he can pronounce that name any way he wants. Sure, to, right. Yeah. And he's still he's still he's still the mighty Howard. <laughs> he's still the mighty Howard. That's right. He's a uh, he's one of those guys you put in the esteemed company of like a uh, you know a Jack Taylor or yes. a, you know or a, or a um, the late lamented Dick Miller now and you yeah. know and and uh, you know Victor Israel. I mean, it's just like you know, I love these guys that just appear in you know everywhere in so many films. They're always great to see. Great character actors. Yeah, seem to be able to slip into almost any role and pull it off to one degree or another. And that's just mm. that's not just uh, their their talent or their ability as actors. It's also something about the what something about the way they look. These yeah. are character yeah. actors. These guys yeah. were never built to be stars. These right. guys were right. built to be people who. Mm were identifiable on screen and very capable of, of, of getting across a lot of different kinds of emotion, a lot of different kinds of, of, mm. of, of uh, ideas mm-hmm. because of the way they look at times. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I'm, we've always called him Howard Vernon. But yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe it is Vernon. Yeah, yeah. Vernon? Yeah. Vernon, maybe? Well, we're Southern boys. We'll just keep calling him Vernon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's lucky we don't call him Vern. <laughs> yeah, Vern, yeah. Howard Vern. I got to tell you, I was looking through, just because I'm such a Howard Vernon fan. Yeah, I, I thought, let me look up and see how many how many uh, film roles he has he has listed under his credits. Yeah, the the count the IMDb has is 193. Wow. Now IMDb, yeah, you know, it's, I know it's yeah. could be could be right, could yeah, be wrong, yeah, doesn't really matter. But just scrolling through it, you can see, oh yeah, I forgot he was in Delicatessen and right. I, you know and things like this. You, you, you mm. see that he was in different films and you you forgot. Oh yeah, yeah, he was in that mm. film. I forgot. But you also have a tendency, especially if there's 193 titles, to stumble across something that just makes you stop. Yeah. <laughs> and so while scrolling through Howard Vernon's long, long mm. list of credits, I stumble across a film that I realize, oh my God, I must see. Mm. It's called Commando Mingala. 
Oh, wow. Commando wow. Mingala. Commando Man. What year? 1987. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Directed by the man who directed Burial Ground. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> that does sound like a must-see. Yes, like indeed. A Commando so, Mingala. Commando Mingala. So I immediately said I was like, okay, guess what? It also stars uh, Chris Mitchum. Oh, yes. Anything. Fernando uh, Ray. Oh, my God. Chris Mitchum, yes. <laughs> Jack Taylor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm there. Shirley Knight. Wow. Antonio Mayans. Oh, my God. So it's like immediately I'm like, I must see this film. I guarantee you that it will probably be terrible. Yes, but if you but get I it, must we, must have to, yes, we must have to must have to experience this. <laughs> and it's like, I was trying to remember, how many films by the director of Burial Ground have I seen? And I couldn't remember. So yeah. <laughs> let's just add Commando, Ni- yeah. Commando Mingala to it. Now, there are other titles, but Commando yeah. Mingala is the, is the one that kind of stood out. It's <laughs> a great title. <laughs> It's, it's just like huh, every day. Sometimes the IMDb is a curse. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention Commando mm. Mingle, the, the, the plot. Oh, okay. It's about a Jewish hit team <sighs> sent after Joseph Mingala. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's a part of me going, hey, wait just a minute. Did, uh, uh, yeah, no, was, I was thinking this too. It's just like uh, did Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino maybe see that. I was thinking that too. I was like, huh, this sounds like a sequel to Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> I know. This is a Jewish commando squad Nazis. <laughs> Nazis, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Holy crap. What it is. Yeah. I must see this. Mm-hmm. I must mm-hmm. see this. <laughs> Can I join you? How terribly impolite. You're going to Hartog also? Yes. It's going to be a long night. You're traveling all alone? Occasionally. And you? I'm always alone, yes. But I don't mind it at all. I travel for my own pleasure. And preferably on trains. Or on boats. Very long journeys. I don't like to fly. No intimacy whatsoever. Do you think so? Of course. You're an amazing woman. And I wonder... You wonder what? If this is life. If this train is real. If it's going someplace. Are you really there? Touch my hand, please. My dream. I hope not. Now back to Howard Vernon's death scene. Mm-hmm. This is where we this is where we get our first bit of of uh, the the revenge taking place. Mm-hmm. We have Miss Death Nadia uh, going out and doing Irma's bidding. Mm-hmm. And part of what she's done to Mrs. Death is those long nails that she wears. Yeah. Yeah. She has somehow created. Yeah. She's poisoned. Mm-hmm. Now it's ne- you know it's never explained. There's mm-hmm. nothing about it that's ever explained. It's very much a mm-hmm. very much a, a pulp fiction kind of uh, 
science fictional thing. We're not going to explain this. This is yeah. just the deal, so run with it. And it's mm-hmm. not, and it's no big deal. Nobody cares. Just do yeah. it. Yeah. But here's my question: Is like, what do you think about the whole using poisonous fingernails as a murder weapon? Do you think? It, do you think? Just in general, what do you think of it? And then also, how do you think it works within this film? Um. Well. It certainly is like about as impractical <laughs> as you can. Yes. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I hope she also told her, oh, by the way, don't scratch your nose. Visually, it's a great, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great kind of pulpy, you know, memorable, uh-huh. you know, thing. But, but it's, it's. Uh, well, they do a smart I mean, thing you know, by, by thing. setting up in mm-hmm. the stage show mm-hmm. and having her when she's, when she's like semi seducing the mannequin as yeah. part of that, as part of that nightclub show. Mm-hmm. We have her do that thing where she rakes those nails across the mannequin's neck. Yeah. Which is seems to be the moment where Irma gets the idea to mm. employ her and to poison those nails and to use them that way. I guess in a lot of ways, too, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a very female kind of weapon, too, in the sense poison of, Poison is, is a female and and, 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 and yeah. the, long, the long nails, the extension of the nails. It's something that a woman could, could have and could pass off. You know, yeah. more than a male could, as far as in public. You yeah, she's know, not walking around with a knife. She's right. not walking around um, with a gun. And because she is kind of Miss Death, is sort of an exaggerated, you know, so a, a version of of fem- femininity. You know, because yeah. you know, as a color, the body, you know, with this transparent clothing and this you know, voluptuous shape, and and so I feel like, in a way, it kind of visually is a nice enhancement. You know, cinematically works. You know, again, the the, the thought of it, it again, it doesn't seem like a real practical way to deliver death. It's just because there seems like an awful lot that could go wrong you know that but uh what i kept waiting for and this is even after only like a couple of viewings of the film a few years ago i kept thinking to myself why didn't they ever draw attention to the fact that she's she's you know her nightclub act had her as a spider and this is her delivering poison like a sting mm-hmm. and they never even talk about it in those terms and they just always seem like mm-hmm. you know uh, mm-hmm. like a like a spider's bite or a spider sting or something like that mm-hmm. and uh they, in other words it's a visual thing and this is how the this is how those murders are you know well at least mm-hmm. a couple of them are accomplished right. yeah one of them doesn't work out exactly right yeah exactly as planned because yeah. Very smartly, the th- by the time we get to the third victim, the third victim is like knows that somebody's tracking yeah. these three people. Well, I now. think even the second victim does, and I yeah. believe. Yeah. We, yeah, I do like the fact that victims are idiots. Thank you for saying that because I was going to say the same thing. I, I think like I, I like the fact that by the time you get to second and third, is is they're 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 very aware yeah. of what's going on. Uh, and in fact, in in fact, one of them even kind of gets the upper hand temporarily. Yeah. You know, but I do like you're right. Like I said, they're not idiots. They figure out pretty quickly we're being targeted, and they start to you know. Uh, they 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 start watching for it or know it's coming, whatever. So yeah, I agree with you on that. The um, the nails do seem impractical, but they they are a yeah. classic, yeah. you know, weird pulp thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. something. As a matter of fact, there's very much the, the an aspect of a spicy pulp novel mm-hmm. from the 30s or the 40s in this film. Because of the the femme fatale nature, the weird the weird forms of death is like something mm-hmm. right out of a Doc Savage mm-hmm. or a Spider novel, mm-hmm. or like I yeah. say, one of the spicier, yeah. you know, um, shall we say, more adult mm-hmm. pulp mm-hmm. novels mm-hmm. where things got uh, things got a mm-hmm. little rapey, yeah, <laughs> and a little weird, yeah. yeah, yep. It's impractical, but mm-hmm. my God, it really I mean, it, it fits so perfectly mm-hmm. within what he's doing here. And I've always said that, and this may this may be true of you as well. My favorite moments in all of Jess Franco's filmography are almost going to be somehow connected to the areas of interest that overlap between Franco's 
loves and my loves. Mm-hmm. And so as yeah. soon as he's doing some kind of pulpy mad scientist mm-hmm. revenge story, yeah. I'm already on his side. Yeah. Uh, he's doing some uh, old dark house story mm-hmm. with, you yeah. know, uh, a creepy erotic woman who you're not sure is a murderer or not, but mm-hmm. sure, you know people keep dying around. Things like this. Once mm-hmm. you start doing that kind of thing, I'm on board. Mm-hmm. It took me a lot longer to, to find a way to enjoy the langorious, you know, tales of of ennui that ha, you know that has a, have a tendency to be his uh, go to bread and butter kind of mm-hmm. telling the story he wants to tell mm-hmm. as he moved along in his career. Mm-hmm. Although he did repeatedly turn to, he did every kind of story in the book. Let's oh, be yeah, honest, yeah, he did. Yeah. He did also all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. But this kind of uh, spicy pulp story mm-hmm. done with such beautiful cinematography. Oh, yeah. With on, on amazing sets. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, I, like I think all of these were. I don't know if all of them were uh, locations or not, but they all look like real places. Oh yeah, and the the playfulness in a lot of the film of what it, right. that it knows what it's it's know that it's times when it knows that it's exaggerating that it knows that it's yes. pulling into case in point when Nadia is in her seduction scene with with Howard there and she's sitting across from him at the first sits across from the dinner table and they go into a tunnel and the only, and then everything shuts down all the light till just where it's framing her eyes. Right. It's like, okay, you know, we know what you're doing, you know, Jess and cinematographer, they know what they're doing, you know, and there's no hint to like make this at all realistic, but to yeah. make this pull you totally into this heightened kind of reality, this, you know, right. of, of this is how you see, this is how you saw it in your head. If you were reading this in a, in a, in a dime store novel, this is how uh-huh. you would see this scene just like this. And, and that stuff is really cool really playing with 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 the audience that way i like it's that. it's beautifully done i think we've 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 held the gush in mm-hmm. pretty effectively mm-hmm. but the use of camera the mm-hmm. choice of shots the mm-hmm. framing of shots mm-hmm. the the atmosphere that it, it's just laid on um mm-hmm. there, there's there is so much atmosphere in this film some of it is just because they have these amazing locations to work mm-hmm. with some mm-hmm. of it is just a we've got these yeah. great places yeah you know, if we film them, you know, all we have to do is film them properly, and we've mm-hmm. got, we're going to get a lot of great visuals out of this. Yeah. But a good bit of it is that the film builds well. Mm-hmm. The, the film mm-hmm. has its shocks and surprises. It has uh, an ongoing sense of uh, concern for where the story is going to go. Whether the movie mm-hmm. pulls that little thing, and it's something that, especially back in the '60s, if it got talked about, it got talked about in a negative way. But this film does that thing that I've kind of hinted about just a little bit, which is it kind of puts you on the villain's side, because yeah. mm. if not not necessarily <clears throat> on, not necessarily because you're like rooting for, her, mm. but because of the way the story is structured, is you're kind of hoping that she succeeds because then the story's more mm. exciting. Yeah, yeah. Because then yeah. tension builds. Yeah. And uh, so by the time you get to that third victim, mm. and things start to things start to come apart because he's not an idiot. Yeah, yeah. He knows that someone is attempting is yeah. probably attempting to kill him. Yeah, and he's smart enough to, mm-hmm. to like you say, get the upper and, hand. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, and, and of course you're, of course you're gonna have a certain amount of sympathy for Nadia anyway, because we know she's she's doing this against her will anyway. Yeah. yeah, and so that helps too. You know, since right. she's the kind of the tool of you know, you sort of don't want you sort of that puts you kind of sympathetic to her as well because. You don't want to see her come to a bad end or be caught or whatever. So it's uh, it's 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 very very nice the layers of the subtleties there. One of the things that you get in these stories, where you're following a killer mm-hmm. as they go about their evil revenge plan, mm-hmm. is often you either don't get the cops involved in the story at all, mm-hmm. or 
the view the view of the film shifts a little too much in the direction of the cops yeah. and the police procedural mm-hmm. aspect of yeah. the story yeah. as they attempt to uh, figure things out and put mm-hmm. a stop to it. Mm-hmm. That the film starts to become unbalanced at a certain point. You're mm-hmm. like, we're spending way too much time with these cop characters, and you don't have as much concern for the cop characters. And sometimes there's a problem where you get to the end of the film, and whatever happens, the those cop characters don't end up playing into the end of the film, right? You know, like you sort of built them along as characters that were heading in a direction, too. And sometimes the movie then, after they've used them to give you exposition, they sort of forget them. Yep. And that can be a problem, too, sometimes. But I find it interesting that I actually like the two cop characters. Oh, I do, too. I really do, yeah. And uh, some of it is helped by the inside knowledge that we have as, you know, as people who've watched a lot of Jess Franco films, which is that the two cops are played by... (laughs) Jess Franco, the director and yeah. co-writer, yeah. and Daniel White, the man who wrote the music for yeah. the film. Yeah. I've seen Daniel White. Uh, Daniel White got dragged in front of the camera by mm. Jess Franco on many occasions. Uh-huh. And I think he's always great. Yeah. And I think that's weird to be able to say mm. because primarily Daniel White was a musician and a mm. really good one. Mm. Uh, and uh, his, his score for this movie is quite good. Yeah, it is. I've never had any complaints with Daniel White's music. Mm. I've just sometimes felt that uh, Daniel White's music was being used... Mm-hmm. incorrectly in yeah. the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if this movie really fits or not. I think yeah. you're maybe trying to wedge this music into this. I think he's great in this, and I think Jess, Jess is, is really great. good Jess, as well. he is, he is. And their scenes are well-written. Like I said, there's a lot of humor in them, but without going just totally, yeah. like, doesn't go too broad with it, but just in nope. the kind of nope. ongoing joke about his triplets that are his his kids that he are keeping him up at night. He can't get any sleep. Yeah, he can't yeah. get any sleep. And so he's just, compl- he's frazzled the entire time. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the great jokes near the end of the film, which I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll go into too deeply, is you know the, the way he's able to figure things out as a cop is to <laughs> to finally get some damn sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, and, that, and that's great. Yeah. But there's just enough of those characters, and mm-hmm. you're right. The writing, the dialogue of those scenes mm-hmm. is colorful and funny. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. funny without being stupid. Right, They're actually right. funny in an intelligent way. They don't. Yeah. They don't make you roll your eyes. Mm-hmm. And when they bring Philip into it, because that's kind of where they mainly, he's their main contact, you know, as he's trying to figure out what's going on. They kind of yeah, bring him because into we it. should mention that yeah. uh, Nadia and Philip were actually living together. Right, right. And uh, they actually had plans just before she gets uh, grabbed up by mm-hmm. Irma. Yeah. <laughs> they had plans to go away to Paris for the weekend or for even a little bit longer, mm-hmm. just for just for a little uh, short vacation. And then Nadia vanishes on him, leaving a mysterious note behind that makes Philip really wonder what the hell's going on because the note says that she's gotten a job offer in Paris, mm-hmm. which is where they were going to go. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he knows from the outset that something is up here. Yeah. This doesn't, I mean, it's her handwriting, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem as if this is something she would say. Mm-hmm. So having Philip and the two cops. Mm-hmm. Um, those scenes don't feel they, they they don't feel intrusive into the story. They yeah. actually they actually push the thing along well, and they even have and I got to say the film does have one scene where the two cop characters mm-hmm. and Philip are talking, and Philip it, it's almost as if the screenwriters went we have got to get this we got to we got to advance this idea we got to mm-hmm. inject this idea into the cops' brains yeah and what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have Philip. Essentially, just out of the blue, come up with what's actually happening. And throw yeah, it on the table. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he kind of lays it out there, <laughs> right? And any, anybody watching this movie is going, yeah. "Whoa, where are you getting that?" Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, you got yeah. nothing to base that on. There's a little of a bit of a leap. There's a little bit of a leap. So yeah. But once but that's again, a, that's, uh, another, yeah. that's another you know pulp, yeah. pulp kind of thing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. somebody, somebody you know, usually mm-hmm. I have to say this. Usually, mm-hmm. it's the uh, the 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 go get them newspaper reporter that, that gets that idea. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and tosses it out there. 
But here, here we have mm. the the jilted and, and overly concerned lover mm. who's suddenly got this brainstorm that actually is actually right. <laughs> and there's you know one of the bits of humor, humor that's actually adult and 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 funny and also kind of realistic, uh, and also leads to kind of put your mind wondering about certain things is that great little exchange between when Philip has told them that he was had had you know had had been intimate with or had spent the night with you know with Irma well he doesn't tell him he doesn't tell him he doesn't tell him but he does he does tell him he identifies the body that they think is her body from the burned car and they ask and they ask her so she was a natural was she a natural blonde well we all know exactly what they're asking and he says how would I know you know which is yeah a great way of like it could be him being a gentleman and not going to tell or is it does it mean that that night that we assume they spent together maybe making love, did. perhaps maybe they, they just not. spent it as friends? You know, it is yeah. kind of a nice little. I thought that was cool. It just kind of makes you wonder. You don't. It's like, oh, maybe we don't really know what happened between those two. You yeah, know, I'll, I'll have to admit. And it, it leaves until, the viewer a chance. Until, to, if the viewer wants yeah. to believe that of him, wants to believe that right. of him, and not have to think of him as a two timer, then it leaves you it kind of gives you that avenue there. To yeah, you're right, and the, yeah. and I'll, I'll admit that. The way I've always read that until these last yeah. couple of viewings of it mm-hmm. on this new Blu-ray was I always read that as him trying to be a gentleman, yeah. trying to, yeah. trying to, you know, this woman's dead. I'm not going to say something that's going mm-hmm. to make someone who has never met her think yeah. think poorly of her. Yeah. I'm not going to say that. I'm yeah. not going to do it. Yeah, uh, that's that's that's, that's yeah, how and I that, read and that could very so, well be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a definitely a, a realistic yeah. reading of yeah. it. So. I, I think there's a scene where now there's a, well there's definitely a scene in this movie where the cops are sitting at the. I think it's one of the times when Philip is in and talking to him, and Jess Franco is, has got a cat there on the desk. That yes. he's like, hey, isn't a that kid, a, it's a it's a kitten? Yeah. And didn't that happen though? And does does that not happen in one of the earlier? Did that not happen in like Orloff or one of the earlier? I feel like I won't go oh, back and watch because I felt like that was another Franco thing that had happened in well, one cats, of the other films. Like cats do show up. Yeah, Fra- Franco Franco seemed to like cats. I think he did. Let's yeah. Be yeah. <laughs> yeah, And the fact that he's you know in the in the scene with the kitten sitting mm-hmm. sitting on his desk, he's the mm-hmm. one you know playing with and petting yeah. the kitten, and yeah. very and very and very directly at one mm. point picks the kitten up and puts it back where he wants it. Yeah. Almost as if no no, no kitten, you're not <laughs> you're, you're not wa- you're not wandering off. You're not wandering out of my shots. Yeah, that was just funny because when I saw it, I thought like I think I feel like I've seen that before in another one of those another film oh, like Orloff or something. So. But yeah, I wouldn't surprise if I did. Yeah. But <laughs> he's, he's used cats in quite oh, yeah. a number in quite yeah. a number. Yeah, uh, and it was it was kind of fun to watch the kitten <laughs> oh, yeah. sitting there just, meowing like, very just loudly. Well the uh this film, we, we we talked about the fact that he's kind of playing with a lot of the same things that he played with in Alpha Doctor Orloff. But mm-hmm. one of the things is is that Franco throughout his career reused and recycled mm-hmm. scenes, mm-hmm. story ideas, mm-hmm. characters, mm-hmm. character names, situations, mm-hmm. locations. He recycled and reused everything as if he were, mm-hmm. were constantly taking some idea. Mm-hmm. And twisting and turning it to try to find a new way mm-hmm. to view it, if not for mm-hmm. himself or the audience, then just to make it more interesting for the stock company that he kind of you know mm-hmm. brought in and used mm-hmm. to to do some of these films, especially mm-hmm. the the really low budget ones. And he you know he remade this film essentially a few years later mm-hmm. as She Killed in Ecstasy. It's, right. Yeah. It's essentially the same story. Mm-hmm. One of the reoccurring themes, and one of the things that I think has a tendency to make a large number of the the cult fans of Franco's movies return to his movies before they really catch on to what's the, the deeper things that are going to be drawing them back to those movies. The things, the ideas and the themes is that he has a tendency to, as with this movie, use dangerous, beautiful women mm-hmm. as the avenues of good, bad and, and strange ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Here we have 
a dangerous and erotic woman mm-hmm. setting about on a revenge tale. Mm-hmm. She's the she's the the driving force of it. She's mm-hmm. the reason all of this stuff happens past a certain point. When she starts, until she's done, this story continues. Mm-hmm. And hey, may even continue past the, the end credits. We, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. As we as we could talk about, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But the dangerous female, the dangerous erotic female, whether she's whether she's evil, whether she's good, it doesn't really matter. Mm. The fact that the, the the woman has that capability, mm-hmm. the the eroticism leads to the ability to be a dangerous creature, yeah. to lead men around, to get what she wants, to do mm-hmm. anything that she wishes. Mm-hmm. And to see those women become that use that mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. to affect change in the world, to do things that put them often, especially as you get into the seventies Franco films, put them outside of the range of normal society. Yeah. In a lot of cases, those women want to be outside the range of normal society. They they shun it. They they feel mm-hmm. it's uh, beneath them or something. They, they don't even feel a desire to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And the uh, fact needs to be stressed that in this movie. We have three different female characters, two of whom are victims of the of the other. Mm-hmm. All of them are strong individual women who are di- they play different roles within the story, but they also could be they could be the centerpiece. The, the three characters I'm talking about they could be the centerpiece of their own movie off to the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in some ways, if you look at Franco's yeah, filmography yeah. as he went on, those three characters kind of were reoccurring characters under different names and different mm-hmm. storylines mm-hmm. for the next couple decades or more. Yeah. You see Irma Zimmer pop up under different names, mm-hmm. played by Lena Ramey, yeah. played by Soledad Miranda. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, you see that dangerous revenge-seeking yeah, woman right. yeah. on, a, you know, on, a, on the vengeance trail mm-hmm. or with some you know, mm-hmm. you know, dastardly deed in mind. Mm-hmm. You see... The beautiful, either nightclub singer, yeah. or uh, what, whatever, yeah. being misused mm. and you, being misused or used or forced into a position mm-hmm. to do something against her will, like Lena Romay and Night has a thousand right. desires that right. we that we covered. Uh, exactly, very much those. Yeah. You see that character type again and again and again, mm-hmm. but you also see the dark-haired uh, lab assistant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, character. Mm-hmm. In in other words, this woman who. Would in, in in a normal film would just be that sidekick character, mm-hmm. but who in different stories from different angles as as mm-hmm. Jess Franco <laughs> rewrites and plays <clears throat> around with these story ideas, these mm-hmm. these kind of pulp ideas, that character sometimes comes to the fore and ends the mad scientist's you yeah. know plot, right. Des, you know destroys yeah. the monster, does yeah. whatever. And I think it's great that there's this vision of Jess Franco in some circles. Mm-hmm. As being this, uh, because he did, you know, let's be honest, he did make porno films yeah. as, as, along with his straight films, at, 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 you know, throughout mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. There's this vision of Franco as this uh, possibly misogynist, this man who mm-hmm. <laughs> zoomed the camera straight into the crotch of, you know, any female <laughs> actor, you know, any female and actor who would yeah. let him. And of course, he did several women in prison films, which are always right. going to feature brutality against women. Always, I mean, yeah, part, brutality against women. Line, you know, as part of the storyline. So, right, yeah. right. They're, they're exploitation storylines yeah. to begin with. So I think that Franco was, fra- I think he was fascinated by these, the, by, by women. And he was also fascinated yeah. by female character types. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I think he's much more fascinated, much more interested oh. in women than, oh, he's, I think so. I think than he, he was ever absolutely. in men. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I the, totally. Male, the male characters are almost always, except when they somehow become um, uh, the the centerpiece of a story that he's really like shows on to and really wants yeah. to tell. Yeah, 
I think it's even weird. Like the, you, you can almost sense him, even in the two Fu Manchu movies he made for Harry Allen Towers in the late '60s. Mm-hmm. You can almost feel him wanting to like stretch out and like, can I not turn Fu Manchu's daughter into the main <laughs> yeah, character? Exactly. Yeah. Can I do that? And he's like, no, you really can't. Really, you, I, it seems like you want to, but you can't yeah. do that. And I think that's one of the best best things about exploring more and more of Franco's films is that even the ones that are very slight that don't particularly connect with you. Mm-hmm. I love seeing him build and use these often very strong, sometimes very strange, mm-hmm. but always erotic and interesting female characters and using them in different scenarios in odd ways. And it's sometimes almost I, I don't think he I don't think this is how he worked, but I almost picture him sitting down at a table with several notebooks mm-hmm. and like writing down, you know, mm-hmm. mad scientist, female mad yeah. scientist, and putting it on a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and then writing uh <laughs> and then writing uh, teenage girl uh, questioning her own sexuality, writing that down on a piece of paper and putting it over here. And then trying to find a way to write a story <laughs> yeah. that will get that the teenage girl to be the mm-hmm. mad scientist character somehow. That, yeah. we, that we build the story so that she becomes one or that one becomes the other or you learn that mm-hmm. this was that one through mm-hmm. flashbacks or something like this. I now realize that I've seen far too many Just Frank films <laughs> because these are the things that begin to be they begin to that's, percolate in my brain. Yeah, and I start they start working on about. you. They do. They yeah. do. It's 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 all the thing. Ultimately, you just want to look up and scream. What were you trying to tell us, Jess? What were you trying to tell us? <laughs> or did you just want to finish this one and move on to something else? Well, the the, the second. I think a good visual representation of some of what you're talking about occurs in what would be our second set piece where she goes after this, you know, goes after victim, you know, doctor number two. Right. Because of the way this is told, which is a long, continuous kind of stalk through the city streets, which is a great reversal on all the films that we've seen for years of the foggy streets male villain or creature stalking the female. Yeah. We've got the exact reversal of this as his doctor goes through these wonderfully lit and shrouded, you know, fog shrouded streets and he becomes aware of her, and he knows who she is. He knows why she's following him, and knows, but but he or he suspects. He suspects, yeah. but the thought of the fascination with her takes precedent to his own self-preservation. He's like, rather than just getting the hell out of Dodge, if it, this may even possibly be the person he suspects, is he's so fascinated with her that he just kind of like falls in with the whole, you know, they sort yeah. of do this weird kind of dance in this these streets here, this kind of passing each other and viewing each other, you know, which again is that. Power of the the female that, that yeah, I think just the, saw it, that power the, to fascinate lead men to their their doom you know by <laughs> that not that you're saying all women do that but just saying they have that but they have that power. capability yeah. yes exactly so yeah uh, that's I, I love that whole sequence too you know the way it plays out is just very well done the editing is great on it oh I know it's beautiful yeah and the, and you're right it is a brilliant reversal of mm-hmm. almost a stalk and slash sequence in mm-hmm. a slasher mm-hmm. you know de- you know a decade mm-hmm. and a half later yeah it would be. It would fit right into that, except you're right. The genders are reversed. Mm-hmm. The, the victim is leery from the jump. From the jump, the, the victim yeah. is leery the moment mm-hmm. he sees her in yeah. the bar. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very well played, and it's it's a, yet another great sequence within a film filled with great sequences. Did you have a bad night again last night? Yes, quite bad. Triplets? That's a very nasty joke, and especially when they cry. They don't stop yelling. All night long, one after the other. Oh, how terrifying. Inspector, I do hope this case turns out to be an interesting one. As a colleague, a British, that is, you realize I was expecting an interesting plot to occur. I don't wish for us to be involved in too dramatic a situation, but for the time being, my dear fellow, it is rather calm. Here we are. 
Okay, I don't think we're going to dive too deeply mm. into the the final act of this film because yeah. I think um, I think it would be kind of a crime for people who haven't seen this movie to to, to really kind of uh, cover in detail mm-hmm. the the last mm-hmm. twenty or so minutes of the film. I think it's great to have to have people kind of discover that stuff on their own. There's a lot of great there's a lot of great little twists and turns. Yeah, there. and we know even if we said like, okay, you know, you won't stop now because we're about to spoil it. We know that just you're so fascinated by the sound of our voices and our commentary <laughs> that some of you just can't bring yourself to to hit that stop button. That even though no matter how much you want to, so we're gonna have mercy on you this time, and we're just not going to spoil. Yeah. I will say that uh, for a lot of people, uh, Jess Franco's best work was the was uh, this film and, and a lot of the films he made in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways, this... Well, let's, let's put it this way. Often this movie, Diabolical Dr. Z, is referred to as Franco's most accomplished work. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe so. I can mm-hmm. see that argument very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also enjoy a lot of his other movies as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the the level of quote unquote um, accomplishment is just as high in some later films as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the style may be different, but I think um, I think that the people who are calling this his most accomplished film they, they've got they've got two strong legs to stand on. There's a lot of yeah. really yeah. I mean a great cinematographer, beautiful black you know mm-hmm. beautiful black and white great score, uh, witty script. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there's a lot to base that mm-hmm. statement on, but. This is part of kind of uh, the 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 four. Well, it's, it's the fourth and last of the kind of the the really traditional horror films, kind of monster movies, mad scientist movies that mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Franco made in the sixties. Uh, mm-hmm. Alpha Doctor Orloff, Sadistic Baron von Klaus, uh, Doctor Orloff's Monster, and mm-hmm. this one. Yeah, they're the easiest transition for someone sure. coming from say Hammer or Universal oh, yeah. to into Jess Franco's world. Mm-hmm. Um, Present them with those four films, Awful Dr. Orloff and this one most especially, and I think that you you give them a very easy in to the films of Jess Franco. These movies are uh, effective bridges mm-hmm. to a weirder world. Yeah. You know, the, the Euro trash world, the Euro cult world, the yeah. area where mm-hmm. things get a little strange and sometimes you're not necessarily you're not necessarily sure why they yeah. got so strange. Yeah. The great thing about these four movies this one is a strong example. Is it's it it sets you up to understand if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Sets you up to understand almost all of Franco's work after this, regardless mm-hmm. of the style, mm-hmm. regardless of the story he's telling, mm-hmm. and regardless of how he's doing what he's doing, the techniques he's using, mm-hmm. the the budgets that he was you know the budget constraints that he may have been under. Mm-hmm. Because if he is telling a story that involves some kind of horror. And he often was. Mm-hmm. Um, the core of the horror can be boiled down to the fear of a loss of control, mm-hmm. the fear of a, a loss of individuality. Mm-hmm. The for Franco, what you're looking at, and you can see it very clearly in this movie, because the villainess, the worst thing she's doing, besides being a revenge-seeking murderess, mm-hmm. is she's forcing people to her will. She is a monster because she's a murderer mm-hmm. and she's forcing people to kill in her name. Mm-hmm. And once again, that's something that as a plot device, Franco returned to again and again and mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But the through lines that those four movies, if you just watch those four movies mm-hmm. and then examine them carefully in your head, you can see 
the threads that go through even his weirder films, even the ones yeah. that people have a tendency to, to to run away from and balk at and to yeah. think are terrible. Mm-hmm. And he, he he lays the breadcrumbs out there. Yeah. I mean, he, like like we say, yeah. he's using the same kind of character. He's using character yeah. names over and over again. He's using locations over and over again. He's using story yeah. ideas over and over again. Mm-hmm. He's doing variations on a theme a mm-hmm. lot of the time. Yeah. As if to play with those same ideas and mm-hmm. say, well, you know, twenty yeah. years ago, this is what I thought about this, but now I kind of mm-hmm. think a little differently because I'm older now. Yeah. And it's kind of ama- it's kind of amazing. It's almost like those '60s films, those black and white films, mm-hmm. are. The, the, they're the movies of a man who absolutely loved the movies that look like that. Yeah, yeah. And he shows very effectively, I yeah. can make these things. Yeah. I can make them really, really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But as I get older, I become more interested in other mm-hmm. aspects of not just those stories, but of life itself. And yeah. those begin to infiltrate the movies. They begin to become part and parcel of how he tells the stories, the kinds of stories he tells. And even when he's telling a straight story that if you just read the plot outline... Yeah, would make sense. Yeah. would make sense. But he's decided, I'm going to tell it in an oblique way. I'm yeah. going to tell it in a way that I dole out this information in both mm-hmm. fits and starts. And sometimes I only insinuate aspects mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, I try to get people... <laughs> Who are curious about Just Franco uh-huh. to start with those black and white? Yeah, films. yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. Yeah, but I think it's great to be able to then point yeah. and say, "Yeah, well, if you liked, for instance, if somebody came to me and said, man, I really liked Diabolical Doctor Z,' which mm-hmm. I think it'd be very easy to imagine somebody yeah, saying, sure, yeah.' I then want to say, if you'd like to see him playing with that same idea a few years later, watch She Killed in Ecstasy, mm-hmm. because then I think. I'm doing a little bit of the work for them. They don't yeah. have to. They don't have to realize halfway through the movie. Oh, this is the same story. Yeah, they're being told that up front, mm-hmm. and then maybe they can. They that's mm-hmm. an easier doorway into his yeah. you know, his 70s work. Yeah, maybe. No, I that makes total sense. I mean, if if somebody is a truly a total newbie, and you're just not totally sure how receptive they are off the bat to something that's totally outlandish or really unusual in the way that it's told. You know, to show them something first to show that he could work within the rules. Yeah. You know, so that they understand he made you, you're probably really, as you get later into the more outlandish films, you're probably really seeing the true Jess Franco really bearing his, his true soul of what he wanted. You know, he yep. loved, he loved that stuff too, but, but you really see like this was a guy who ultimately was not going to conform to those, but he could if he wanted to, you know, if he, he had those to, skills yeah. and I think it makes it a little more easier probably for them to. To take then the, the 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 films that just get get so much more unconventional. Have you ever thought about what your favorite Jess Franco films are? Well, my um, I want to do a rewatch of this because it has been a while to see if it still holds this place in my view. But to my mind, my favorite still is uh is a uh, Eugenie, the story of her descent into perversion, yeah, yeah. the one with Christopher Lee, Maria Rome, and all that. I can see yeah. that. Um, because and that was actually one of the earliest films that I saw that turned my thinking, you know, about Jess Franco. Now, of course, I've seen one since that I thoroughly enjoy. I love, I mean, I do, I love Orloff and the one we covered tonight and love those films. I love She Killed in Ecstasy. I think it's great. Yep. Um, I know you and I are kind of different on Venus and Furs, and you know, I do want to watch that again, but I really enjoyed Venus and Furs. I know that's not one of your most, favorites most, there. Most Franco um, fans really love that film, and mm-hmm. I could not find my way into it. Yeah. And I enjoyed when we did... Uh, Virgin Among the Living Dead, finally getting to see it in that way. I mean, it's yeah. you know, it was it, just because it was interesting. It was much more the first time I saw it was the the the, the cut that had had all the added just uh, you know nonsense zombie stuff and all that. You know, I still yes. I don't necessarily yeah. think. I mean, it's not necessarily one of my favorites, but I found it much more interesting way around. But yeah, yeah, I'd say probably Eugenie and uh, and uh, she killed an ecstasy are, are two of my two of my favorites, and then and then uh, Orloff and 
And then uh, I love this one we did tonight, and that we're covering tonight. I really enjoyed a lot. Well, tell me something. Um, with, this, with this film, what, what do you give it on the 1 to 10 scale? I gave it a very solid 8. I, uh, I ah, really just, yes, yes. I re- really, okay. really did. I just think it's full of visual invention, uh, a lot of fun. You know, just, uh, uh, just yeah, just thoroughly enjoyed the film from, from start to finish. And I uh, thought the pacing was great on it. Oh yes, and, definitely. Uh, I think mm-hmm. we, we didn't even mention the pacing, but yeah. yeah, because certainly that can be a trouble with problem with later Franco. You know that you have to kind of go with on that. Uh, and uh, um, so yeah, yeah, I did. I did really enjoy this one uh, a lot. So yeah, I end, I I end up. I think every time I see this, I end up giving it an eight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a it's a superb film, mm-hmm. and it's and it's uh, it's it's not my favorite Franco film. But it's top five for me. I think it's really, really good, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one that um, I've al- I've always liked. Mm-hmm. But this Kino Blu-ray, oh my god, it's incredible! It, it, talk about shining the most uh, the most flattering light on a mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. that. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful transfer. This film, it looks phenomenal mm-hmm. i can't i can't i can't praise this blu-ray enough and so i mean you I mean you get uh you get tim lucas taking you through the film on a commentary track what more do you need yeah you know no it's fantastic it is and uh and and i should also say when you're asking my favorite franco film i should also point out that i mean hell in, in franco terms i might as well still call myself a newbie because i know i haven't seen near as many of you i think i counted uh on my franco checklist you know counted how many of these <laughs> films that i've seen and i came up with about I think I've seen about 22, which in Franco terms is really amounts to about 10, 15%, yeah. you know, of his films, you know, so I still have a long way to go. There's a lot that I still need to see, you know, that, uh, of his films. So I think the last time I took a, a rough count, it was somewhere in the forties for me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, mainly because I did, I did go through a period about a year or a year and a half ago where I seriously sat down and like, there were, there were, um, there were a couple of films he made in the early eighties where uh, it was one of those situations where mm-hmm. he shot one film and they reused a bunch of footage and mm-hmm. he shot some more mm-hmm. footage and made a second film out of a lot, you know, like a big, yeah. like half the film, half yeah. of these two films are the same footage. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and, you know, like just in a couple of days and did, and did mm-hmm. those two films. So mm-hmm. that's two different films. Yeah. So it's just like, it, it started to add up because they had a couple of those things like that from mm-hmm. those movies yeah. that are yeah. you know, variations <laughs> on, you know, the right. same footage. Right. Um, so my number is climbed. I would have to sit down and do a real, real hard yeah. count to figure yeah. out how many I've actually seen. <laughs> it's in the forties. I know that's for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think, and think about it, that's up for a fraction. Oh, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And, it may, and it, maybe it's higher than the forties now that mm-hmm. I think of it because, mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. I gave it an eight out of 10 as well. And I think that, um, there was a part of me that almost wrote down a nine. No, yeah. oh yeah, I was very like I said, it was it was, it was I was almost in that range too. I came very close, very close to that. Uh, and as much as I, I mean, I, I loved Doctor Orloff too. I'd have to watch those two. You know, it'd be hard to say now which of my favorite of the two. Really? I would have thought, yeah, I mean, I loved I loved Orloff so much, but uh, but this one just might be you know at least on a par with you know equal with. Now I haven't watched. I do want to go back and watch Sadistic Baron von Klaus because it has been a long time since I've seen that one. I it's remember, very, enjoy, I remember enjoying it, and, and I don't think I've ever seen uh, Doctor Orloff's Monster. I don't believe I've ever. Oh, really? Seen it. No, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen well, that. Well, I tell you what, we ought to do. Uh, maybe later this year we'll cover Sadistic Baron von Klaus. Yeah, and um, then maybe we can even I, maybe maybe I'm, I don't know if we want to commit to it. I know I, I think mm-hmm. Sadistic Baron von Klaus. Maybe we could do Doctor Orloff's Monster later in the mm-hmm. year as well, but. 
boy, that's a heavy Jess Franco year, but I'm, you know, I'm not against it, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, no, we could just consider it a 60s. Maybe we just want to look at it as a 60s Franco or something, you know, and I would like to see if we, we can get through. Yeah, we've, get done, through. we've done 50% of the black and white <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Franco in the 60s. Why not go ahead and do the other 50%, baby? So. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, folks, um, we are going to uh, give you a break from our voices so you can hear something different for just a moment, and then we'll yeah. come back, and we've got a couple of pieces of... Uh, of mail to the podcast, and we will read those out and discuss whatever these fair letter writers have written to us about. We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. First bit of email of the evening. Uh, this is from Elliot. He says, "Hey guys, I'm a new listener." Uh, let me try that again. Don't don't laugh too hard. God, that was terrible. From Elliot he says, "Hey guys, I'm a new listener to NashyCast. I'm a big fan of Hello, This Is the Doomed Show, and you are constantly mentioned. I'm glad I'm finally getting acquainted with the Nashy films and the others that you cover. I was listening to Beyond Nashy number nine, Return of the Blind Dead, at one hour and twenty eight minutes." 10 seconds, you play a fantastic bit of music. I imagine if I was better versed in Nashi's films, this tune probably would be known to me. If you could tell me what theme that was, I would be I would very much appreciate it. I keep on listening and digging up these films. Great podcast. Keep up the wonderful work. Well, uh, Luckily, I was able to. I, you know, we did that podcast a, a while back. Yeah, you probably had to. Uh, you can't just call for a call from memory. But <laughs> no, no, no. I had to. Uh, um, yeah. Go back, listen to that episode, advance it to an hour and 28 minutes, <laughs> listen to the music, go, oh yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> and it turned out that what, what it was, was I had, for some reason, injected uh, the theme music from Horror Express into the episode. Oh, that's good, yeah. Uh, just, just to, I don't know, just as interstitial yeah. music yeah. for, you know, to move from one segment of the show to the to the next. Yeah, good choice. Yes, I can understand why you would, yeah. Uh, yeah. why you would really like that music, because it's yeah. really great music. And yeah. of course, this this makes the second mention of Horror Express in I this know, episode. exactly, yes. <laughs> we can never get away from it. Never, never. Why would we want to? Oh yeah, no, definitely not. Uh, and I think we, uh, I think we wrote back and, and said, by the way, if you've never seen Horror Express, mm-hmm. go see it. Go see it. Okay, the second email is from Michael. He says, "Last time I wrote, I was heckled for liking the Ghost Galleon." <laughs> well, of course you were. <laughs> but I like what I like unapologetically, so we'll move on. And that's okay. That is quite all right. I just listened to your "A Candle for the Devil" episode. Yeah, I'm a little behind on podcast listening. <laughs> don't, don't worry about yeah. it, man. Uh, you both made some good observations about the film. I've enjoyed it since I first saw it on a Sinister Cinema drive-in double feature VHS. Hey, mm. there's a callback. Yeah. With uh, Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf back in the 90s under the title It Happened at Nightmare Inn. I think I had that same videotape, by the way. No. Yeah. I think you came and stole mine. No, <laughs> I think we just bought the same one. Hey. 
I now have the Scorpion DVD, and it's a real pleasure to see to see it in its uncut form with all the exploitation elements intact. It's a solid film with good writing, direction, and acting, but to be fully enjoyed as a legit example from the Golden Age of Spanish horror, you need to see the naughty bits. Mm, agreed. Yes, yes, agreed. It's integral to the formula. It was great to see so many fine actresses from the Blind Dead flicks in Candle. I'll be revisiting it soon to see if it rises from the 7 I have it at currently the way it rose to an 8 for you fellows. That we should we should remark that that yeah. that does happen yeah. as you, yeah. as you live with a film and you revisit mm-hmm. it over time, mm-hmm. certain elements of it. You know, sometimes second viewings improve a film oh, in, 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 immensely. Sometimes it, it doesn't really improve it in some way. It, revisiting a film, if if it's something that you enjoyed, it's 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 a wonderful thing. Sometimes if it's something that you thought sucked, it can change your mind too. <laughs> yes, that can happen as well. He says, uh, by the way, Sinister Cinema is still in operation. I didn't I didn't know that. Wow. They have a website, and I still get catalogs from them. Since most genre films have been released legitimately in the last few years, I mostly avoid gray market dealers anymore. Rarely, I might order something really obscure from Trash Palace or Cult Action. In the 90s, I ordered the Sinister Cinema drive-in double feature VHS mentioned above, as well as the one with Count Dracula's Great Love Mm -hmm. and Vampire's Night Orgy. Yeah. Those really got me curious about Spanish horror, and I still watch those old double features occasionally. The Sinister Cinema cut of Vampire's Night Orgy left off the title of the film, and it was years before I found out what it was I was watching. <laughs> but I knew I loved it, along with the Nashi flicks, and it happened at Nightmare Inn. I have it all on Blu-ray and DVD now, of course, and with some guidance from your podcast, I'm now an obsessed Spanish horror fan. Thanks for your efforts over the last few years. I'm enclosing a pick of my distinctive dummies Nashi figures up to this point. Those three may be all we'll ever get, but I'm hoping for more. And yeah, I see that picture. Yes, I I own two of those three. I was, oh, you don't I have was, all three? I was no, I was I, I was the most recent one that came out, the one from Nine to the Werewolf. Yeah, I uh, I was very devastated that I missed that one. By the time I tried to get my order in, those things went just like I mean, is amazing how quick. Now the two, the two that were based on on uh, on Werewolf Shadow, uh, I do have, uh, but the uh, but the one that's based on Nine of the Werewolf, yeah, that broke my heart. I missed the missed out on that one, so. I hate you. No, actually, I, actually, it is awesome that he managed to get all three. Uh, that's that's. I'm still calling. I'm waiting for the uh, Alaric Demarnak figure. I want a I want a Demarnak figure. Uh, somebody needs to do one. Oh, they, well, they haven't done one yet. No, the way you, no, the way you spoke for a yeah, Yes, yes, yeah, somebody yeah. needs to. That would be that would be good. You're right. Yes, yeah, but everybody get out of the way because I want the first first one off the off the. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> No, uh, excellent letter. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, letting us know. Uh, thanks, thanks for letting us know. Sinister Cinema is still out there kicking. Cause, I had no idea. Yeah. You know, I don't think we could ever convey our the debt we owe to. Yeah. Sinister Cinema, Video Search of Miami, places like that. You know. Well, for, for, and, what the, uh, for me, European Trash Cinema. European video. Trash Cinema was um, a huge. Yeah. I just uh, I'm about to drop the episode. Uh, I had a conversation with Robert Monell recently, mm-hmm. primarily about the the kind of changes in the way that uh, cult fans have have collected films yeah. over over the decades. Yeah. And uh, believe me, Sinister Cinema gets a mention. So does European Trash Cinema Video and yeah. and, and Video Search of Miami mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. 
Not all of them good. Uh, well, sure. I mean, it was yeah. There was sometimes a little crapshoot in what you were. Well, guessing. especially especially with videos. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. But I just remember how many times we watched that trailer, that highlight reel that they that, yes. that we had, where they just had clips from very, some of the craziest clips from some of their Chinese films well, the Japan, and just Japanese, Japanese and Chinese. Will, will just, you oh ever? Will you ever forget Rain, Rain of, of milk. milk? Yes, that was. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Rain of milk. <laughs> For the uninitiated, yes, that's a Japanese woman. Uh, squeezing her breasts, her lactating breasts, and the the milk popping out of it is acidic. Acidic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it's it's a strange world oh, in, that, that is yeah. Japanese cinema, yeah. folks. And yeah. uh, thank God for it. Yes, absolutely. And as to you like in Ghost Galleon, you do not need to apologize. Uh, here in the South, we just say, bless your heart. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would have to say that no, when, no, when, when, we, find, when we, we finally... Yeah, we had uh, fun with it when we We had fun it. with yeah, it. I we think, did. We, we, I think we, when we covered it for the show, I think we, mm. we pointed out our problems with it. Yeah. Um, but I think that the revisit, um, I think the revisit to it this time around last year was a bit more... Yeah. I think we're a bit friendlier toward it. I think we may have mellowed with age. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. hey... Love what you love. That's I know absolutely, I do. Absolutely, absolutely. It's fun. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fun. <laughs> but I want to thank. I think I want to thank the the folks who've written to us. Yeah, we, yeah, we love the letters. Thanks. Please keep them coming. Remember the email address is nashycast at gmail dot com, or you can join us and talk to us over on the Facebook page. Although the Facebook page stuff is kind of ephemeral, I, I find that once that scrolls away, it's it's hard to, to kind of recall unless I it make is. some weird note about it. Yeah. Uh, so you know, emailing is good, and don't forget you can record your messages and send them mm-hmm. to us in MP3 form, and we'll mm-hmm. slap them into the show as well. Any questions are welcome. Any opinions are greeted with uh, not disdain. No. But with derision. The, yeah. No. <laughs> not with derision either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, no. We, we, people aren't going to write if you keep no, it up. Yeah, I know. We respect. We respect all opinions here, except well, each other's. But except yeah, yeah. Try, try, and I clearly. I mean, we clearly have zero respect. We have no respect for each other, and it's <laughs> it's clear that we have spent nine years yes. barely containing our, our massive hatred for each other, yes, and the desire uh, to murder each other. Yeah, that's right, and it is our happy ninth anniversary again, buddy. And uh, how are we going to top this amazing nine years? That uh, what what will the next nine years entail? What, what shall uh, it bring? If we make it another nine years <laughs> podcasting, yeah, I I almost want to do a Werner Herzog thing and say I'll eat I'll eat my hat. <laughs> yeah, but but who knows, man? Yeah, yeah. Who the hell knows? That's right. But we do know what we're doing next month. Yes, next month we are going to be doing another. Because we only think one month ahead, and, now, and so we, that's that's gotten us through the nine years. Is just thinking <laughs> is just thinking one month ahead is what is. If if we thought further ahead, we would never have made it nine years. <laughs> at some point, we'd have been looking a year in advance and gone, "Oh Jesus, we can't do this." <laughs> yeah. But next month, we're going to be back here on the NashiCast feed for another Beyond Nashi episode. We're going to be talking about a film that we've known we need to cover for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, one that I just kind of been on the back burner for us for a while. Yeah. I haven't seen it since the 90s, speaking, mm. of, uh, mm. speaking of buying mm. things from European tracks. Right, yeah, yeah. A Bell from Hell from 1973. It's a, it's a film that, like I said, I haven't seen in a very long time, but I have very fond memories of it. I think mm. that uh, my memories of it are... are they're dim, but my memory um, is that it was a great film. I've so. seen it. Still, it's been a few years, but more recently than you saw it. But I, I, I remember it as being good. A, a, a sick little puppy, you know, but uh, quite good. Uh, so, 
If uh, you're curious, Bell from Hell, I think, is uh, still easily available on uh, DVD. Uh, there has not been a Blu-ray release no. of it that I'm aware of. I don't of, think so. Uh, but I don't think it's difficult to get your hands on. I think the DVD is actually relatively cheap. So uh, if you're curious to follow along with the Spanish horror thread of the Nashi cast, mm-hmm. uh, next month, A Bell from Hell. Looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks, everybody, once again, for uh, listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back here next month. Hope you join us then as well. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. See you soon. Good.